brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio on time on target episode 465. That's Jack Murphy. I'm Dennis Jones. Welcome to the program. A uh, lot to unpack to open up, so I'm just gonna step out of your way. I'm gonna let you lay this all out for you, uh, short and sweet. It's back to Eddie Gallagher. Yeah, uh, this was the story I was talking about a few episodes ago that you know was gonna get published sooner or later. Um. I had not really planned on breaking any news on this story because there had been just so much reporting on it by others. I mean, and, and by others, I mean everybody, you know, right. New York Times, Navy Times, uh, Military Times, CNN, Fox. I mean, tons and tons of reporting on this case. So when I see that, I think, well, there's really no need for me to, you know, jump in there. Um, and, and there's probably not even anything new for, for me to report considering all these other journalists and, and so on that are, that are working on this stuff. But then I had a, a story kind of come to me in a way and I started developing it and it, it turned into a story that could actually be published. Um, the story came to me from sources within the special forces community and they told me the story about how they were on a operation in 2010. It was Marja, Afghanistan. It was a, a huge clearing operation. It was a big deal in the press at the time, and obviously a big deal for the military as well, that they were clearing through this insurgent stronghold in Afghanistan. It was considered the insurgent capital at the time, uh, and a special forces ODA, a special forces team from 3rd Special Forces Group, was working with the Kandak Commandos, who are Afghanistan's national counterterrorism force. They are like their, they're kind of like their version of Tier 1, their premier counterterrorism team. And Afghanistan, the government of Afghanistan, will deploy Kandak and their special forces advisors with them wherever they're needed around the, co- the country. They, you know, they're kind of like, an, you know, a, a, they could be a quick reaction force. They can, go, they can go put out fires wherever they need to do that. Okay, well said. So they uh, are down there, of course, for this big operation down in Marja. Uh, they leave Camp Moorhead. They go down to Camp Bastion and stage out of there where the special forces piece of that mission is being run out of the AOB at that camp. Uh, it's, the AOB is the advanced operating base. And that's where all the you know, staff officers are. It's where the logistical hub is. That okay. They're going to run the whole operation. So attached to the ODA that's going out to hit uh, a objective, um, the objective is uh, Thunderdome. They have an attachment to them. And because the ODAs are working on these big, large-scale operations with the Afghans, they sometimes get attachments uh, who, who are basically there to help them out. And uh, in this case, it was a Navy SEAL, a SEAL sniper, 
and they told me that it was Eddie Gallagher. Okay, going out on this operation with them. So the uh, joint Afghan American force they push up to this road intersection, which is uh, Objective Thunderdome, and they capture a house there that they're going to use as kind of their staging ground out in the field for the for this operation. So they come in and capture this area, um, and uh, Chief Gallagher, I'm told, was up on the roof with other Special Forces members, and there was a lot of Afghan National Army ANA guys driving down the road through this road intersection to participate in the operation, and they said uh, that Chief Gallagher popped off a shot at the ANA, and <laughs> one, one round actually went through the rear window of a Hilux and embedded in the dashboard. Which... Not a great start. No. Um, and then throughout the, the that that day and, and into the uh, next morning, there was a farmer nearby. He was kind of a uh, middle-aged guy. And whenever there was a lull in the firefight, whenever there was a lull in fighting, this farmer would come out with his hoe and he'd start working his land. <laughs> <laughs> farming, farming waits for no man. War be damned. Yeah, another another day in Afghanistan, yeah. and, and the interpreter uh, for the team kept telling this this civilian like, "Go back inside. It's not safe out here." Of course not. And he'd keep coming back out anytime there was a lull in fire, according to my sources. Um, and so then you have the thing with the ANA that night. The next morning comes. And the ODA is there. They are waiting for the Marines to come in and backfill the areas that they had cleared with the Afghans. And then the ODA and the Kandak commandos will move forward and capture the next village and and so on and so forth. So they are waiting up there. um, And it was at that point that they hear a a shot taken. And there's actually another ODA member up on the roof who saw this unfold and witnessed allegedly Eddie Gallagher shoot and kill this unarmed farmer. And Gallagher was then reported to have been bragging about having shot the unarmed farmer. The team waits up on the rooftop. The team, I should mention, is split in half. So a, a, a special forces team is 12 guys. So there's six guys up on the roof of this building, and then there's 12, or I'm sorry, there's the other six guys are inside a adjacent building. Okay. So when nightfall comes, the guys who are up on the rooftop egress to the other building to bring together the team. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the ODA members that were on the roof said, hey, this, this SEAL sniper is doing crazy stuff and reported what he did. And the leadership on the team, the, uh, the, the team uh, warrant officer and captain came to the agreement that this SEAL needs to be off our mission. So they send him back to the rear. Um, there is a resupply helicopter coming in that night. They say, hey, when you come in and bring in this resupply, there's going to be one PAX going out with you. Okay. Um, but they don't report over the radio what's exactly why. Knowing, I can understand that. Yeah, yeah. knowing what's, what could the yeah, repercussions the, the backlash, could of course. be. Um, so the SEAL gets put on the helicopter, taken back to uh, Camp Bastion, the AOB, and what I was told uh, was that Chief Gallagher continued bragging about killing this farmer. And at one point, the AOB commander overheard this and pulled Chief Gallagher aside to speak to him. And after that, whatever that conversation was, I don't know. I wasn't, my sources right. didn't know. He was then put on a plane 
and, and sent away. And so this was, came to me from sources in special forces. What I was also able to obtain was a uh, NCIS document, the 2008 NCIS investigation into Chief Gallagher. What that document shows is a SEAL sniper, who I won't name yet. I'm sure his name will almost certainly come out during the trial, which is going to start Monday. But I agreed to withhold his name for now. Fair. Um, he was a, a SEAL sniper, and he reported to the NCIS investigators that um, that Eddie Gallagher told him that he had killed a unarmed farmer during a mission in Afghanistan. So now it seems that you have multiple sources here that are telling the same story. Um, in order to do my diligence on this story, I have to reach out to the other side. It's the, the of course, respons- it's only responsible thing to do. So I contacted uh, Chief Gallagher's defense attorney, Timothy Parlatore, uh, and I talked to him on the phone. We had a conversation, and... Um, and Chief Gallagher's defense attorney said the story is totally made up, totally fictional, never happened. Um, he, he confirmed that Gallagher was in Afghanistan at that time, but said that he was not on this particular operation. Now, it, that's fact-checkable, right? Like, it, there's got to be some kind of documentation that would, not necessarily that he, that he allegedly shot the farmer, but... Wouldn't somebody on a manifest somewhere on a, on a con op somewhere? It, it is. I mean, with some more digging, some FOIA requests, you could probably turn up those documents and confirm or deny whether or not he was present on that operation. Which is a, a crazy move for the defense attorney to uh, to claim that if if it's that if like I feel like it's not the hard, I mean it's not the easiest of digging, but. If you look into it, they're going to find an answer one way or another at some point, whether, whether he was there or not. And, not if he, and the other guys who are on the team and the AOB. But as a reporter, I have to keep an open mind. That of per, course. Perhaps, of course. perhaps this is a case of mistaken identity. Perhaps something's completely wrong here. Um, but there's enough, there was enough sourcing that this was something that um, had to be reported. Um, you know, I, I think it, it was the responsible thing to do was to report it, but also to report you know, the other side of it and what the defense attorney had to say. Um, so I published his comment as well, uh, saying, you know, you the did. story's entirely made up. Um, and as I've said in the past, is it possible Chief Gallagher is innocent? Um, that he's going to go, he's going to trial on Monday for the alleged murder in Mosul, Iraq. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's going to be exonerated of that. Maybe he's going to be exonerated from this uh, incident, that, this alleged incident in Afghanistan as well. And I have to keep an open mind to hearing out both sides of the story um, as I do this reporting. Um, But it's certainly interesting. Um, Another thing that I did want to mention, because I think the the reporting can easily become muddled by all the different people out there trying to weigh in on it. There was also a report, and this came out in some of the NCIS documents also, of a Special Forces Warrant Officer. He uh, got arrested, apparently, for child pornography. And while he was being interrogated, he threw out to the interrogators, like, oh, yeah, I also know (laughs) about this murder. 
I also know about this SEAL that committed a murder in Afghanistan. But when they when the investigators pressed him, he said the SEAL on the mission was like 6'3", and Gallagher, I think, is like 5'8". But there, there's a pretty big discrepancy. Okay. Um, so there's all sorts of things that did not line up with this warrant officer. So I did a little bit of digging on this. The warrant officer was not out on the operation. Whoever, uh, whoever this guy, I won't name him either. It's a whole other can of worms. But then also, um, because he was in a compromised position and he was trying to sell NCIS. Yeah, I, I could see that. You I, start spinning, yeah. spinning your web of lies. So because of that, I took that information and just threw it out entirely and did not use it Probably in, for the best. in my reporting because it's compromised. And that, that, that special forces uh, warrant officer is not a reliable source. So I have to cast that one aside and move on with other sources of information. And I just wanted to point that out um, because I'm sure other people will bring it up and try to discredit the story entirely. So the story was published yesterday afternoon. And of course, I expected a sizable backlash and was not disappointed. (laughs) Um. There was, I'm not going to, you know, get down into the weeds with it. Um, Of course, Chief Gallagher's wife uh, made a a fairly strong rebuttal, you know, uh, about yours truly. But that is what it is. And, you know, she feels she has to fight for her family. And I don't blame her for that. I I get it. Yeah, that's to be expected. I would would assume that she would defend him. Of course. And, And I... Although she said some things about me that aren't true, I have to respect the fact that she is fighting for her family. And I have to look at it from her perspective that she's seeing her husband slip away and seeing her future slip which away. Is, which is commendable on your end because I don't – I mean, I don't think I would get down on the muck. But when people start name-calling, you can, it, can, it can get a slippery slope. So good for you for – I don't well, want to say rising above it, but well, having I, I, having a level head about the again, situation. Again, it's, it's just you have to be responsible about it. There was one thing she said um, that other people ran with that I do want to address because um, if it were true, it would be reprehensible, but it's not true. Well, and, you have the platform. And since we want to talk about facts, and facts are important, let's talk about some facts. All right. There was a previous story I worked on about Chief Gallagher. This was back in January. And the title of that article is uh, Navy SEAL Chief Gallagher's Stepson Speaks Out to Defend Father Accused of War Crimes. That was January 5th of this year. So I wrote this story, and what Mrs. Gallagher was saying and what other people began to run with and make sound even worse was that I had gotten this information from her son's uh, like some sort of like gaming platform and then presented it as if I had interviewed him. And then other people are like, oh my God, like, you know, Jack Murphy cyber stalked a 10 year old kid on Xbox <laughs> right. and took his comments and ran with them. Like, no, like factually, no, that's not what happened. Okay. Where this came from, how this story came about and where these comments came about was that Chief Gallagher has a stepson. Uh, Mrs. Gallagher's biological son, Chief Gallagher's stepson. Uh, He was 18 at the time. He was an adult, and he did a AMA on Reddit. Which is always a great idea. Uh, So for those who aren't familiar, and I'm not like a huge Reddit guy, but Reddit is a publicly viewable public uh, internet forum that anybody can go on and read, and an AMA is ask me anything. So like, you know, 
you know, famous celebrities and stuff and, you know, Anthony Bourdain or somebody like that, you know, uh, the late Anthony Bourdain, you know, uh, or uh, Bill Murray. Well, a- any celebrity, really. Well, like, go on there, so ask me anything. And it's, and it's just, uh, it, it becomes a, uh, a genre on social media in of itself, I guess, that, you know, anybody can go in there and ask, you know, this guy. Any question. Any like, question. I mean, they don't have to answer it, but there's some outlandish questions out there. So uh, Chief Gallagher's stepson did an AMA on Twitter, and, uh, and he has since deleted it. <laughs> Smart. Well, I screen capped all of it. Smart on I, your part. And I have that because I have to do my diligence, right? Um, and then I sent, um, I sent this young man a, uh, uh, a direct message and just asked him if he would uh, be willing to entertain a phone call and if we could talk. And he said, uh, no, I'm not interested in getting on the phone. But he provided me with some information that I could use to verify that he was who he said he was. Um, and, and that was it. And we took it from there. And I, was, I was said, you know, thanks for that. Appreciate it. You know, um, and I, I off the bat in my first message to him, my name is Jack Murphy. I am an investigative journalist. You know, here's where you can find my work. You know, uh, very clearly tell who you are. It's not like, hey, man, let's play some Call of Duty and yeah. let me get to know you a little bit. I told him I'm working on a story and I want to get my facts straight before writing anything. So. I did not trick this person. There, there was no subterfuge involved. I was not stalking a, a, a kid on Xbox. That never, ever happened, nor would I ever do something like that because it's reprehensible. Um, but this was an 18-year-old adult, and he posted this information publicly, and I went to him about it and talked to him about it. And then I wrote the story, and you can go and see the story for yourself. And um, it has the quotes from uh, from Chief Gallagher's stepson, and it, it, it's it's not. Uh, I mean, I think it's a fairly straightforward article, just saying, "Hey, this is what Gallagher stands accused of. This is what the stepson says. Um, you know, this is what's going on with the with the case." Uh, and I think that. The reason why you haven't heard anything about this story until today is because the, this first story I wrote largely supports the defense's narrative. Very fair, yes. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's in the stepson's words that, you know, the SEALs, uh, you know, some of the quotes in here, you have to understand SEALs aren't what they used to be. All the badassery doesn't really exist anymore because of shit like this. The new generation of SEALs aren't like those you have movies about. Uh, where do you say... He said of, of uh, Gallagher's teammates, they're out to get him. He worked them like a horse, and those pussies couldn't handle it. Uh, you know, it's this kind of stuff that, that uh, Gallagher was just such a tough leader that his teammates turned on him. So it supports the defense's narrative um, in that sense, right? And that's why I think we haven't heard anything about it before. But look, you, you love me, hate me, indifferent. I just want to clarify that, no, I was not cyber stalking kids on their video games like come on man like really other than that (laughs) That, that, i mean there's not more to pile on there but like he's she claimed he was 10 and he was no 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 she didn't say oh oh, i was gonna but she said like her son and then from there others take it take that story and run run with with, it okay and so i'm getting message I, i like i wake up in the morning i'm getting message from people like you went, you went on this son's video game. You asshole. And, yeah. yeah. And it's like, no, no, that's not what happened. Listen to episode 465. I'll explain everything. 
So we'll see what happens next with this story, um, if anything. But it it's interesting. And, I mean, you can go and read it. The, the story uh, is titled... Uh, Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher was also alleged to have committed murder in Afghanistan. Both, um, both your one from January and the one you wrote on the 12th will be linked in today's episode. So if you're listening and you have an interest in reading it, which you should because it's a great piece, uh, just go over to softrepradio.com and the link will be in there. You can click it and it'll take you right to it. So you can read it for yourself. Um, and like you said, the trial gets underway Monday. So I don't think this is the last we've we're going to speak about Eddie Gallagher. I can almost assure you it's not. No. Um, and you could even argue we have a responsibility to report um, because we have talked about him on his uh, eventual guilt or innocence or, or if, if there's a mistrial uh, report on that as well. So I, I think one way or the other, you know, we we're going to have to follow up on the story. Of course. I mean, being the reporter you are, you, you can't just leave it. There's, there's always a follow-up. To We haven't even, like you said, they haven't gone to trial yet. There's no verdict, yeah, yeah. so. Well, I mean, at a minimum, we have to report on what the outcome of the trial Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, with that, that's, that was heavy Eddie Gallagher to open. Um, we haven't even mentioned our, our guest today, which we're not doing our due diligence. Um, his name's Ed Morales. He was a former Marine. He was also a special agent in the FBI, and most notably, he was involved in the 1986 FBI Miami shootout. Um, we're not going to get much more into that because that's why we have Ed on four. Yeah, yeah. But it is, a, it is certainly, you and I were discussing off air, wild story. Um, a shootouts in general, like, you, you know, you see them in movies and they're one thing, but this, this man lived it. Yeah. So hearing his story is going to be incredible as all the guests we have on. But definitely looking forward to having Ed on and... Not much more that needs to be said without without having him on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be interesting to say the for least. for sure. Yeah. And this is a, this is a famous famous firefight that took. Yeah, place. I mean, we yeah. were we were reading about it. and It said they. It. I mean, he'll hopefully he'll talk more about it. But it changed how agents handle uh, tactically, just with the the handguns and whatnot. And and I'm sure Ed'll delve into that. Yeah. Also. He was the first agent. I'm sure I'll mention it in my uh, my intro of Ed, but he's the first man to win, first agent to win the Medal of Valor, which is oh, interesting, also incredible on his behalf. I didn't know that. So, um, something else to add to the the legend of Ed Morales. So, we're looking forward to having him on, which will be shortly for you guys. But first, the show is brought to you by Airdrop. Airdrop is a new section on Crate Club where you can find essential gear and killer apparel that you can buy separately from our monthly and quarterly club subscriptions. There's some great stuff on there that's heavily discounted, but a lot of these items sell out quickly, so you got to act now if you want some. For example, we got a few more Cry Precision Ballistic Soft Armor inserts and Crate Club Fishing Spears, but there's other items like the Gerber Multi-Tool. They're gone, so don't even bother. It's up on its own section on CrateClub.us, or you can go to store.crateclub.us to check it all out. That's store.crateclub.us. Tons of gear that you're going to love. You can find that on Airdrop. Is there anything else you would like to discuss? I know this was predominantly Eddie Gallagher-based, but... No, that's all I got offhand, yeah. I mean, quite an intro. You did a phenomenal job explaining the story. Ex- defending, not, You're not defending yourself. You're explaining yourself. Um, the whole rice farmer, I don't want to say he's a rice farmer, but the farmer crazy. I mean, you said another day in Afghanistan, but 
Um, are you, do you watch a lot of, um, military movies? I know probably the old stuff you do, but like, I, I want to say it was triple nine. It was called, it's on Netflix. It came out within the past half year. Um, but w- as reading this, it reminded me of the scene in there, which I mean, they very well could have pulled from it, but they, they might not have. It was, um. It's Ben Affleck. Um, triple Frontier. Triple Frontier, not Triple Nine. Triple Frontier. I did watch that, yeah. That reminded me of the scene. I'm not, well, spoilers for anybody that hasn't seen it. You should. I enjoyed it. Um, where after they go and they're trying to get to the boat and they come upon that village and it kind of had that feel, t- not necessarily the same, but I feel like directors in, in Hollywood, they pull from situations like this where obviously you don't want to do it, you know, uh, step by step, but you take it and you're like, all right, here's the situation. Like, the, you know, these people are trying to live their lives and you got these military guys doing something that's not exactly, you know, on the up and up. Um, you with the background you have, is that, and am I just like trying to pull well, strings here? What, look. Well, I mean, I'm sure that, well, we, I have to draw a hard line between fact and fiction, but you're, you're right in that they, uh, these, these Hollywood product, uh, producers and so on they they hire um technical advisors who have military backgrounds so all right well that that answer that was my question i mean that was because obviously i mean it is fiction let's clear that right up right off the bat uh triple frontier is fiction but i wanted to see your opinion if like almost how much do they pull not i mean the technical advisors because you you're on both ends of this like you're you know you're former military but at the same time you want to put a good um product for for television or movies whatever so is it that little bit of like you know here's the story but at the same time you're you're like you know these guys are my brothers like i'm not gonna i'm not giving you the almost like a magician i don't want to belittle it but like i don't know i mean i'm not really a hollywood guy so i, I really couldn't say okay but um i did i i mean yeah i'll just leave it at that i don't really know what goes on in hollywood fair, fair enough um but yeah that that was just something i wanted to bring up because reading the story, it reminded me of that scene and I had seen it within the past month. So that's why it, it popped in my it was head. A, it was an entertaining movie. Yeah. I mean, definitely <laughs> ridiculous, but entertaining. Yeah. And I mean, that's what you want when you watch Netflix, at least unless you're watching the documentaries, which are good. Um, with that weird sidetrack on my part, I apologize. Uh, we're going to bring on Ed Morales, former Marine and special agent for the FBI. And he's going to tell us all about the 1986 shootout in Miami. So Enjoy. Joining us now, we have Ed Morales, former Marine and a graduate from the University of Maryland, but you are most notably known for being a former special agent in the FBI, where you were involved in the 1986 FBI Miami shootout. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. We we are happy to have you on, Ed. Thank you so much for joining us. And we are, I know Jack and I have discussed off air, very much looking forward to hearing your account. This is just a wild story. 30 years later, um, and we are very excited to get right into it. Okay, super. Yeah, just ask me, uh, ask me any question you want to know. I'm, I'm, you know, generally pretty, you know, <laughs> pretty direct. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. Uh, well, why don't we, uh, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, your, uh, your background growing up and how you came to um, join the FBI? Uh, yeah, I was uh, born in South Texas uh, in the early 50s, and uh you know, grew up in a small little Texas town. Uh, you know, I, I remember the days. You know, it was almost almost reminds me of Iraq. You know, those hot 
hot days, you know, no, no rain, you know, the dust is flying, you know, and, you know, I had a great life, you know, uh, family, church, school, and, uh, when I was growing up, I was watching, uh, we had a black and white TV, which was the center of the house <laughs> in the 50s. I, I watched a program called the uh, FBI, FBI Stories with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. <laughs> and uh, I sat there watching the show, and I'm thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great to be an FBI agent, you know? And <laughs> I said, you know, and it'll never happen. You know, it'll, it'll just never happen, you know? But uh, I kind of filed it away and, you know, continued to live my life, uh, went to elementary school. School, you know, uh, junior high, high school. Then I, uh, during that time frame uh, in the uh, '60s, uh, the U.S. had the draft, so uh, I was subject to the draft. And uh, as it turned out, I, I had a had a, a high number or low number, depending on how you look at it, you know. And uh, I thought I would take fate by by the horns, you know, and say, hey, you know, I'm going to name, you know, my time, my place, and uh, I, I enlisted rather than than be drafted, you know. So. <laughs> I joined the Marine Corps, and um, you know that was a, an interesting, uh, interesting uh, career path, I suppose I could call it. You know, and uh, I was lucky enough uh, to have uh, been involved with uh, or, or get to know uh, an FBI agent, uh, a real live FBI guy. You know, so, and he took an interest in me and, and kind of recruited me. Um, he said, "Hey, I, uh, he liked what he saw." Uh, he said. Um, you know, I, uh, as soon as I finished my my um, uh, studies at the University of Maryland, uh, he said, "Hey, uh, give me a call. I'll um, I'll um, get you an application, and um, we might be able to get you in uh, into the FBI pretty quickly." And um, sure enough, he was a man of his word. You know, he uh, he got me an application. I applied, and uh, you know, as luck would have it, uh, I was accepted. You know, and, and the rest of it is kind of like a, <laughs> that's that's the rest of the story, as uh, has been said. Wow. So which field officers were you uh, sent to, and, and what kind of cases did you end up working in those early days uh, during your career? I, I was recruited, uh, yeah, since the University of Maryland's around, you know, Washington, D.C., I was recruited uh, out of the, uh, I was living in Virginia, I was recruited out of the uh, FBI office in Alexandria. It no longer exists. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I guess uh, merged with the uh, the Washington D.C. office. Now you have the the general uh, Washington D.C. office, which covers uh, Northern Virginia, Washington, and Southern Maryland. You know, so uh, I was assigned there for five years. I had a, uh, uh, an undercover uh, operation that I worked in Miami for about eighteen months. Then I came back to Washington. And uh, and subsequently, I was uh, transferred to Miami in 1985. But but while I was in Washington, it was uh, man, Washington's a neat place to work. Uh, it um, I was on a terrorism squad, um, which was kind of like cutting edge. I, yeah, I yeah. At, at the time, you know, back in the it was actually 1980 to be exact. And uh, I don't know if uh, many people remember the uh, Iranian uh, embassy takeover, you know, yeah. the 444 days, you know. If, and, and if, I, they, that, that uh, if they listen to this podcast, they better be familiar with it because <laughs> we've had people who are on that operation to rescue the hostages on here. Correct, correct. Yeah, you know, and I, I'm still, honestly, excuse my friends, but I'm still pissed off, that, you know, at that whole incident. You know, the U.S. responded so poorly. 
I mean, I'm not for, you know, you know, bombing people into the Stone Age, but, you know, it should have been somewhere in between there and, and, and diplomacy because I, I was, uh, you know, I was just so ticked that uh, these, these, uh, these quote-unquote students uh, are marching yeah. our, our diplomats and, and our, our staff around blindfolded, you know, like, like trophies, you know, and it, I still have that image in my mind, you know, and I, I was just so so upset about that. So anyway, my, I digress a little bit, but uh, everything at the time was uh, was Middle Eastern terrorism. So we, we were hot, and, uh, you know, going hot and heavy on, uh, you know, trying to figure out who in the U.S. Uh, was a legitimate student and who was a, um, a, a potential terrorist. You know, so it was um, it was interesting times back then, and then uh, subsequently, I was uh, in '85. I was transferred to Miami, um, and I was assigned to a bank robbery squad. Can Can you talk at all about those undercover operations you were working in Washington D.C. Um, doing counter? Uh, I guess anti-terrorism is the term I should use. Oh yeah, you know, we were just like I said, you know, we were just investigating. You know, uh, at the time. Um, I was really amazed. I mean, because I, I had no exposure to this at all. You know, I mean, we we were trying to figure out. There were so many students, quote unquote, students that were involved. Uh, that, that were not not involved, but that they were um, from the Middle East. And uh, we ended up uh, looking around and and uh, and trying to figure out who was a, re- a legitimate student and uh, who was um, at, at the time who was quote unquote one of the uh, Iranian uh, intelligence folks or uh-huh. Iranian hit hit squads that were supposedly sent by the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, to uh, to hunt down people that were against his government and and, uh, and against him personally. So you know we would go through. A processor you know we'd have to find everybody you know our, our you know our country's so great uh, you know folks use uh, use uh, those uh, freedoms against us you know because you know people would come in as a student and then they'd disappear you know I mean <laughs> they'd be here for six months and then you know uh, they're supposed to be at the University of uh, Georgetown or or, um, or Catholic University and then they'd be in San Francisco, you know, working somewhere else, doing something else, you know. So that that was our job, tracking these folks down and uh, trying to figure out, hey, what's your involvement, you know, with uh, potential intelligence operations or uh, potential terrorism operations in the U.S., you know. So, I mean, that was like full-time work. I mean, it was like unbelievable, the, the number of, uh, of students that were in the country. And, you know, the old, uh, you know, illegal immigration, you know, uh, uh, conversation that's going on now. I mean, a lot of these were overstays. You know, they'd mm-hmm. get a visa and then they'd overstay their visit. You know, and then you know nobody would you know would would care. You know, so wow. except us. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get into you know your assignment to the bank robbery squad, um, I wanted to ask you the question as far as what sort of training or preparations you had through um, the FBI or or elsewhere um, to deal with a firefight that's a sort of life and death firefight um i i know I, I think you can see where i'm going with this but i'm just curious before you get before all of this you know what kind of training did you have well you know i i was one of the lucky ones uh i had uh small unit tactics and uh, you know training in the, in the marine corps you know where mm-hmm. back then Here's another another term that many people don't don't uh, remember. We were <laughs> I was actually training for the Vietnam War. You know, it was towards the end. I enlisted in '70, and um, you know, we were actually preparing. My, my unit uh, actually got 
orders to, to report to, to Vietnam. And uh, right about that time frame, the Honorable uh, Mr. Nixon and uh, Secretary of State Kissinger uh, were negotiating with the Vietnamese and uh, uh, the president. And I guess uh, Kissinger, you know, it worked out a deal where they started pulling back. They started ending the war. So we were actually... Excuse me. We were actually um, loading our gear. I was part of an artillery group, um, and um, we were loading our equipment on ships, you know, to be uh, transferred over to uh, Vietnam. And uh, <laughs> I remember it was like midnight one one evening, you know, and they said, "Hey, stop loading, guys!" Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> the president's called off the war. We got to <laughs> take all this crap off the ship. <laughs> <laughs> kind of funny you know but it's like what <laughs> i mean i'm i'm just an e2 you know a snuffy you know i, I mean i'm just i just do what i was told you know <laughs> so i so anyway so but getting back to, to your original question you know, yeah i had you know we we uh, we shot a lot you know we did a lot of uh tactics we marched a lot you know we uh you know as a as a as a as an artillery guy i, I wasn't a cannon cocker i was a uh, forward observer you know so i mean i had to hump uh, a lot of times you know out front you know hoping that some big you know piece of steel didn't land on my head you know <laughs> it shouldn't you know since i'm the one calling it in you know so <laughs> But uh, luckily for me, like I said, I had I had that training, you know. But then in the FBI, you know, there is a. Unfortunately, uh, if I'm honest, which which I, I try to be, our training at the time in the in the eighties, which is I came in in seventy nine into the FBI, our training was was good training. Um, but there's a, a a difference between you know training a person how to shoot and then you know. Uh, actual combat training you you being you know with your background you know what combat training it's, it's a whole different environment you know shooting at a at a 500 uh, at a 500 yard you know at the 500 yard line you know just shooting at a at a target that's static yes you know that you could plink all day you know but then you get you get in a you know close quarter battle you know i mean you're moving and shooting and 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 you know you're assessing and and move forward move left move move right you know the FBI didn't have any of that. We, we would shoot uh, in lines uh, that were teaching marksmanship. And uh, towards the end of our training, it was a 16-week program, towards the end of our training, we, we, we uh, would go into what they called Hogan's Alley, the old... Uh, Hogan's Alley, you know, the little mock city. Yep. And, you know, there were just pop-up targets and turning targets, you know, very, very little actual uh, stress, you know, and, and it was very limited at the time, you know, but, you know, it, 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 it is what it was, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, that's what it was back in, in 1980, you know, so um, then the rest of it had to be on your own, you know, uh, when you were assigned to your field office, you know, you were expected to continue to train and, and uh, maybe if you had any outside interests, you know, and train on your own and, and look for for any uh, like ex-military guys that uh, you know that could help you out, you know, with any tips or or what have you, or maybe go to some uh, private um, trainers uh, that that could teach you, you know, tactics, you know, uh, moving and shooting that and type of stuff. If I could just interrupt just for one one quick second, and I, I just wanted to point out to listeners that. At this time, 1979 into 1980, this was when the the idea of um, combat reloads 
or drawing a weapon from concealment and firing it, drawing a sidearm from concealment and firing, those were drills that were not really taught at that time. I I think the only person, the only place where people could really get that kind of training was from Jeff Cooper at Gunsight. Exactly, 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 right. And, you know, that was was viewed by by many, uh, you know, uh, law enforcement guys, or not guys, but not law enforcement trainers, as exotic or you know uh, over the top, you know, <laughs> you know. So, but uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, um, I hate to say it, but the attitude at the time in the FBI was, "Hey, if you have to use your gun for something, then you screwed up." You know, it's like, "What? Uh, what do you mean I screwed up?" You know, that was that was the attitude. You know, the old, the old school guys. You know, the. Uh, the the true you know gumshoe investigators you know the, I'm talking like really old school you know well son if you had to shoot somebody then then you probably made a mistake somewhere you know you, you should have talked to him a little more <laughs> well <laughs> so I'm, but that attitude has changed believe me my friend it, it has changed a great deal you know <laughs> on on that note let's um let's then start talking about getting assigned to the bank robbery. Uh, squad down in Miami. And I imagine as a, as a young FBI agent, that must've been kind of exciting. Oh, it was, it was super exciting. I mean, it was like a, a dream come through, you know, because my squad was, it was a bank robbery investigations, fugitive investigations, uh, kidnappings and extortions. I mean, it's like, it's like the, the trifecta of, uh, of good stuff, you know, to work. I mean, what what young person wouldn't want to work uh, bank robberies? And, and I loved, you know, some one of my neighbors asked me, and I think he got mad at me. He says, "Do you hunt?" You know, and and I used to hunt as a kid back in Texas. I used to hunt rabbits and you know stuff with my dad. You know, um, and as I grew older, and when I got out of the Marine Corps, I, I stopped hunting animals. You know, I, I just didn't, you know, I just didn't sit well with me, and I'm shooting, you know, some. Poor defenseless little rabbit, you know. So I, I stopped hunting altogether, you know. And one of my neighbors asked me, he "says Do you hunt?" I said, "Only people." You know? <laughs> and, and he looked at me, and he never talked to me again, you know. <laughs> but but I, I tell you, I loved to hunt people, man. I mean, it's it's like Hemingway said, you know, there is no no thrill like hunting a a, 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 a man and hunting armed men. You know, once you get a knack for it, I forget the exact quote, once you get a, a taste for hunting armed men, you'll never want to do anything else again in your life, you know. So, and it was true. I mean, I, I used to jump out of bed in the morning, you know, going to work. I mean, it was fantastic. Because you were you know, kind but, of uh, engaged in manhunting, tracking down yeah, armed ex- bank robbers. Ex- yeah. Exactly. And we were hunting, you know, armed humans, you know. And it's like, I mean, talk about the, 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 the most dangerous game in the world. Yeah. You know, it's like, wow. I mean, it's like, you probably know. I mean, you, you've hunted, you know, terrorists and Taliban folks in the Middle East. You know, it's, it's kind of exciting. I mean, in a, in a very yeah. kind of odd, sick way. You know? Yeah. And we, uh, speaking of which, we had FBI HRT guys with us on, on some of those targets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I was told, you know, I, I was aware of that, you know, because uh, any time there's a possibility of, of tracking down a, a, a wanted uh, terrorist in the U.S., you know, they, they, they like to assign uh, some folks to it, you know, that way there's no issues with, uh, oh, yes, he was given his Miranda rights right, in Kabul. Right. So there's you know, a chain so. of custody. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> right. So, can you before before um, the the nineteen eighty six incident? Were there any um, really interesting cases that you worked on? Uh, you know, working on the the bank robberies and extortions and and all of those. Oh gosh, you know there were. I mean, there were always little. I mean, there there was always something funny going on. You know, it's like I remember. Um, I'd been looking for this guy out of New York, and uh, it, it was a, what we call a dog case. You know, it, it had been you know sitting around for like three, four, five years. No, nobody could find this guy, and I got the case, and I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, a dog. You know, it's like, you know, supposedly all the leads had been covered. You know, so I, I opened the case, and I went back to the very first page. You know, I said, okay. Let me read, you know, how this thing started, and I'm reading, and I'm reading, and I, and I go through through the whole case file, you know, and I'm thinking, hey, you know, I just realized something, you know, this guy was supposedly enrolled in a technical class, a technical school in Miami, and I said, you know, I, I saw that, and, and the, the agent at the time went down to, to check at, with the university, um, and uh, the um, the agent made a report saying that that nobody... Um, knew him or something like that. So I said, you know what, that, that's interesting. You know, so I, I started looking into it and I started calling. Uh, I think it was uh, Dade County or Miami Dade University. So I, I said, you know what, let me find out. You know, so I went to admissions and I said, hey, listen, I'm trying to find a friend of mine. You know, his name is you know Bill Jones. You know, blah blah blah. You know, of course I I didn't tell him I was you know hunting him. You know, so uh, they said, oh yeah, you know. Uh, Here's his record. I said, "Well, did, did he have any friends? I mean, did he? Can you? Do you have any professors that he may have known, you know, or, or that that he took classes from?" So, you know, I'm, I'm just going down, you know, just you know, actually, just you know, kind of like, you know, a shotgun lead. I just you know fired a shotgun up into the air and and see what see what I could hit, you know. And then lo and behold, I I found a um, a what do they call it in college? A, a counselor or a like a student counselor. Uh, yeah, student counselor, right? I found a student counselor listed on there, and and uh, I said, "Well, what the heck?" You know, so I went over and I found the student counselor, and he said, "Yeah, I remember Bill. You know, he was uh, he, he had uh, he was getting um, a disease. Uh, he said he he stopped coming to class because he he couldn't uh, uh, commute in, anymore. He couldn't drive. I guess he started getting Parkinson's or something. I, I forget what it was. So I said, "Oh wow, you know," I said. Uh, do you, you don't happen to have a, his his contact information, do you? And he goes, yeah. He says, I, I think I might, might be able to find it. So lo and behold, he actually found an address for me that he had used when he registered for classes. So I said, what the heck? You know, I can't believe I'm so lucky, man. So I went to the address, and, and it was on Miami Beach. And uh, I'm thinking, well, you know, it's a transient area, you know, and I don't want to stir up too many, you know, you know, move too many leaves, you know, because it, it'll um, – It'll, you know, let them know that I'm looking for him. So I, I kind of narrowed it down to a building, you know, an apartment building, and then uh, I started flashing this photo, pho- photograph uh, around, the, you know, the local grocery stores, the local bar. You know, back then it was Blockbuster, you know, going went to the Blockbuster, and I, somebody at Blockbuster uh, video said, oh, yeah, this guy comes in periodically and, and runs a video. I said, okay, he's still in the area. So I just kind of set up, set up out there, you know, looking for him, you know, just in the mornings or in the evenings, and then one day he just <laughs> walked out of the uh, an apartment in the, in the building, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, I actually watch him. He goes into a car, opens a car, puts in his uh, his his 
things, his briefcase or something, goes back into the apartment, and that's when I said, okay. I drove my car around, parked it around the side where he couldn't see it, and then I kind of, you know, stood around, you know, pretending to wait for a bus or something. I forget what I did. And he went to his car, and I walked up behind him, and I said, oh, this is terrible, you know, because in Miami you have all kinds of robberies and, you know, carjackings and home invasions, you know, and I didn't have any, any markings on me except my badge on my chest, you know, and most people don't, don't see that. They just see the big gun in your hand, you know, so, you know, so, and I said, ah, you know, I hope I don't get shot, you know, or I hope he doesn't turn around and try to fight me thinking I'm trying to rob him, you know, so, but luckily, you know, uh, that, that didn't happen, you know, I just announced myself, you know, FBI, don't move, you're under arrest, you know, and it was, um, it was pretty anticlimactic, you know, so, but anyway, when I, when I got him, you know, and, and put him in the car, you know, and, uh, I said, so dude, you know, I said, how, how you know, how you been, you know, he goes, oh, I've been fine, you know, he said, he said, you know what, I'm glad you caught me, he said, what took you guys so long, you know, it's like, wow, dude, <laughs> you know, he, he said, man, I've been living for like, I think it was seven years, he'd been a fugitive for seven years, he said, man, he said, it gets tiring looking over your shoulder all the time. You know, I said, well, I mean, you could have turned yourself in any time. <laughs> <So>, but, <laughs> but I don't think he wanted to do that, you know. So that that was an interesting case. And then there was an, another case we, we made fun of the agent, you know. Um, he went out there looking for a fugitive, and uh, and he asked for some help, you know, because there was a, an informant who said that uh, the fugitive might be in, the, um, in a shopping mall. So he couldn't cover a shopping mall, you know, by himself, you know, so he, he asked for a couple of guys to go help him. So we were out there looking, you know, for, for the guy. And I, I, I hooked up with him. His name was Bobby. I mean, the, the agent's name was Bob. We call him Bobby. I said, Bobby, what are we looking for? You know, he says, uh, Oh man, that's him over there. That's him over there. So he starts walking fast. You know, I said, Bob, which guy is he? And he's pointing. He said, there he is. There he is. You know? And I said, Bob, where are you pointing us? Who is this guy? He said, it's a guy in the wheelchair, you know. <laughs> I said, Bob, are you kidding me? You called the troops out to arrest this guy in a wheelchair? He said, no. He said, I just can't cover this whole mall by myself. You know? so, so I, I helped him. I helped him stop this guy. I stuck a cane in the spokes of, the, of his wheelchair, and he... He, he kind of skidded out of control and fell out of the wheelchair, you know. So, no, I'm kidding. That didn't happen, you know. But the, big joke, the big joke was that, yeah, you know, you got the guy was getting away until you you, uh, you, you stuck a stick in his, in his folks' his wheels, you know, and then he skidded out of control. So it was, it was, a, big, it was a big deal, you know. So, uh, but, you know, it was a lot of fun, though. I mean, we, we did handle some, some dangerous people, you know. I mean, a lot of killers, you know, a lot of murderers, you know. You know, rapists and stuff like that. You know, probably one of the one of the ones that I'm glad I didn't work on was, um, and this is going back like ancient history. Uh, there was a lead from Texas about uh, parental kidnapping got to be a big deal back then. You know, a, a spouse. You know, which is it's fair. You know, a, a spouse is supposed to have joint custody. And, you know, the, either the husband or the wife takes takes her child and leaves the state. You know, it doesn't tell anybody where, where he or she is, is going. So then it becomes a, a, a parental kidnapping case. So there was a parental kidnapping case in uh, out of Texas. And I knew something was stinky because uh, the case didn't come to us. It went to another squad. I don't know how. 
but I am so glad we had nothing to do with it. And it, apparently the, the father had some political connections in Texas, and he got a warrant issued for his ex-wife's arrest. And um, they told us that the, the wife would be in Miami at a certain hotel, and two agents, you know, from uh, from an, another squad went down there to, to to look for her. And oh my lord, it caused a big hullabaloo because um, she happened <laughs> she happened to be a contestant in the Miss USA pageant. <laughs> so they went down to the Miss USA pageant and arrested one of the participants. Oh my god. <laughs> During the pageant, you know, and I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me, man. I said, even I'm not that stupid. I mean, come on, guys. You know, so, oh, my God, it caused a big hullabaloo. But they and, said, and then, uh, then it lands in the papers and everything else. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, we, they had to warrant, you know, and like I said, the guy in Texas had, had some, he was like a muckety-muck, you know, like a, I don't know, some somebody's son, you know, a mayor's son or a state senator's son or something like that. And he said, hey, man, I want this I want this woman caught. You know, she took my baby, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, so, I, I, you know, we were so glad we had nothing to do with that case because, I mean, I, they, they were, it was a righteous arrest, you know, but I think it could have been a little bit more discreet than yeah, to go yeah. to the uh, Miss America <laughs> <laughs> or Miss USA, whatever the hell it was, Miss USA pageant, you know, to cough. And and uh, and perp walk some beautiful looking woman, you know. <laughs> uh, that's unreal. Oh my god! No, no, there's so many stuff. So, so many. Trying so many time it perfectly cases, to get you know, the so. uh, bikini contest. That's when you. Oh bust, yeah, that's when you exactly. Bust wait, wait for the bikini contest, and then perp, perp walk her out. You know. So. <laughs> <laughs> What's your special talent? Oh, getting arrested by the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, I mean, I, 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 those are some funny cases. But no, there were some other cases. You know, where I mean, it was. We had a situation. It wasn't me directly involved, but it was the squad. Uh, they they uh, were looking for somebody, and uh, they they found him at, at uh, his ex-wife's residence. I guess you know she was giving them top cover, and um, they surrounded the place. And then the guy tried to speed away in uh, in in the, the wife's car, you know. And it was it was just a big big you know, screw up, you know, I mean, on his part, not our part, you know, I mean, we had a warrant and we had about 12 bodies and, and about, you know, eight cars. So he, there was no way he was going to escape, you know, down a, a residential street, you know, and, uh, he crashed his car into a, a bunch of police cars, FBI cars. And, uh, they told him to put his hands up, you know, and he reached, you know, for something, you know, instead of putting his hands up, mm-hmm. uh, he reached for something on the seat or under the seat, and somebody lit him up, man, put a shotgun uh, rifle slug through the back of his head, you know. End of story, man. There's, there's no way you can recover from yeah, no from a, an ounce of lead going through your your head at about a thousand feet per second, you know. So, you know, so I mean, uh, you know, there, there's some fun stories, but there's some also very, very serious, yeah, you know, you know, shooting incidents, you know. So, well, then, can you tell us a little bit about the lead up? to uh, the, the 1986 shootout and, and how you guys were sent to stake out these two, uh, these two criminals. Absolutely. You know, the, the thing is, you know, back in, in uh, like August of 85, um, we started seeing a, uh, I mean, Miami's, a, Miami's Miami, you know, it's like, I mean, you can't sugarcoat it, you know. It's, <laughs> it's uh, I mean, it's a, it's a violent place. It can be very violent, you know. Uh, and um, 
we had at the time we had two separate gangs of uh, armored truck and bank robbers. We, we uh, you know, and I, I don't want anybody to think that we're racist or anything like that. But we call them the the black gang because they were black suspects, and then we call it the uh, the Hispanic gang because they were Cubans. Okay, and that's what so we call them. Hey, you know the black the black guys hit again or the cubes hit again. You know, uh, you know that type of stuff. You know, so we said okay. You know, so you know we we run out there and again that was very violent. They uh, there was one case where uh, a a Wells Fargo guard uh, was walking and in, walked into a building and the the subjects uh, accosted him in the hallway and I guess he must have resisted or something but they just shot him in the head and killed him right there Jeez. you know and uh, they grabbed the bag and took off you know so I mean it's 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 a violent uh, profession violent uh, enterprise but then all of a sudden in, in August we started getting a, a third group because their their style didn't match the black group or the or the Hispanic group. So we just started calling him, calling them the third group because we didn't know witnesses would, you know, could could never tell us whether they were black or white, you know, uh, because they wore ski masks and and gloves, and they wore military style, like you know, the old field jackets back in the fifties and sixties, you know, the the, the old OD, green, OD green, field, yeah, yeah, just plain green field jackets, you know, and and gloves and boots and stuff. So and everybody you know gets kind of distracted when someone shoves a, a 44 or or an assault rifle in your face. You you have a tendency not to look at people's <laughs> skin color. You know, so they say, "What did it look like?" He had a long nose, officer. <laughs> you know? uh, so you know we knew something was up because it wasn't the uh, the two the two groups that we were we were running. You know. And it, uh, the very first robbery that we had was just odd all the way around, you know, because it was a steak and ale, uh, two guys. They attacked a, uh, a Wells Fargo guard coming out of the steak and ale restaurant um, on 80, 88th uh, Street, uh, Kendall Drive. And um, they um, they hit the guard, you know, they took his gun, took his uh, uh, little courier bag, and then they marched him up to the front of the truck with a gun in his ear, and they told uh, they told him, "Tell your partner to open the door." And he's telling the driver, "Open the door, open the door," you know. And he's got a gun in his ear, you know. And and you know, uh, the, the policy for these drivers is, "Don't open the door," you know. So he turned the truck on and drove away, you know. And then he, I, I interviewed the uh, the guard. He survived. He said he was so pissed at his partner. I said, well, no kidding. <laughs> you know, he leaves you standing in a parking lot with a gun in your ear. You know? <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's the policy. You don't open the door. I mean, if you open the door, they'll take the whole truck, you know, and the bags in, in the back. You know? So he begged for his life, you know, and they just hit him on the head, you know, and, and one of the two guys uh, had an assault rifle, and he fired like 14 or 15 shots at the back of the armored truck, and of course it didn't do anything, you know, the bullets just bounced, bounced off. But the interesting part, I mean, that, that part, you know, the shooting and, the, and the, the attempted robbery, that's a normal day in Miami. I'm serious, you know. So, uh, but the interesting part of this whole, whole thing, the whole event, was when they jumped in their car to get away, they popped smoke. You know, I don't know why they they threw out two smoke grenades oh, wow. in the parking lot to cover their. <laughs> yeah, from you know, who? It, it's like what you know. So we said this is odd. You know, even from Miami, you know, it's odd. You know, it's like we said, what the heck? You know, we thought we were dealing with like a couple of military guys from Homestead Air Force Base or 
maybe some at the time they used to call them survivalists you know before mm-hmm. they called them militias you know so we didn't know what we had you know so we we knew it was something different you know so and then we started seeing a series of of these types of strange robberies you know uh the the next the next robbery was a at a at a grocery store and man they lit up the parking lot you know the the guard came out of the grocery store and one of the two players uh, yelled freeze, and as soon as he yelled freeze, he he shot the guard. You know, he, he with a uh, shotgun. He shot he shot him in the legs, and the guard goes down. Um, and then all hell breaks out because the guard, you know, took his revolver out of his holster and he starts firing at, at in the direction that the shot came from. And there were two additional guards in the uh, in the armored truck. They opened up. So the guards fired 18 shots in total. Thank God, you know, for that because if they had, would have had more bullets, it would have fired more bullets. But then the bad guys fired an additional. They returned fire an additional. I think it was like 15 shots. So it was about 30 rounds fired in the middle of a parking lot in front of a grocery store. Okay, like like any 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 ordinary grocery store. You go to your grocery store, you know, anywhere. And what do you have? You got people coming and going, and you know, shopping carts, people parking and stuff. About 30 rounds were fired. Not one single person was shot except for the guard. And we, we, we said, thank God for that, boy. I'll tell you. You know, so they, they jumped in a car and, 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 and got away, but they didn't pop smoke this time, you know. So I guess they figured, you know, why, why pop smoke when we're speeding away at 50 miles an hour? <laughs> so, but these guys but, have a uh, real propensity for violence. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're playing fast and yeah. loose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, so... Uh, but uh, we asked uh, the witnesses, well, what, who were they? And they said, well, they were black. And then somebody else said they were white. And then somebody else said they were Hispanic. What type of car? It was a two-door car. It was a four-door car. It was a station wagon. It was a pickup truck. It was blue. It was green. It was yellow. It was, you know, it's like, holy cow, you know. I mean, when, when, when stress goes up, you know, people's, you know, reasoning goes down, you know. So, um, you know, so the witnesses were pretty much worthless, you know. Um, because we really didn't know, you know. I mean, it's like, was it two-door, four-door? You know, some people said it was a, a pickup truck, you know. So it's like, <laughs> who knows, you know. So so anyway, we knew right then, you know, that these guys were, you know, it's like, hey, a calling card. We're new in town, you know, we're here to, we're here to play, you know. So, uh, and that continued on, you know. Uh, as it turned out that the, the car they used for those robberies, we, we uh, it was abandoned. Uh, we we recovered it like uh, in January, I think it was of the next year, and it was a stolen car, obviously, you know. And we uh, found out that the owner had been uh, had been missing for since August, you know. So, um, and eventually, uh, some hikers found the uh, the owner in uh, in the Everglades, oh, you know. So they found his, his skeletal remains, you know. He'd been shot and killed for his car, you know. So, wow. The Following March, uh, another guy, another uh, citizen, had, had the misfortune of being in the in the Everglades again, target shooting, and two white guys uh, approached him and they shot him and left him for dead. They stole his car, you know, and uh, his car ended up being used um, in a robbery, like within ten days, you know. So, so that that's how the lead happened. Okay, uh, up until that time, up until the the second individual was shot and his car was stolen, we had no clue. I mean, like I said, all the witnesses were just panicked because these guys would come in, you know, usually like, you know, like the movie Heat, you know, they'd come in shooting shooting the place up, you know, threatening people. 
uh, you know, so most people, you know, and, and they, they were pretty good. You know, they, like I said, they always wore their ski masks. Uh, and, and most people don't have the, the wherewithal, I guess, to, to be able to look at somebody's eye, uh, eye area and determine, you know, uh, if they're, if they're white under, if there's white skin there or brown skin or black skin, you know, most people, like I said, just look at the weapons and pray to God they don't get killed, you know, so, so it wasn't until the, uh, the second individual, his name was Jose Calazo, um, was shot and left for dead, that, that, uh, and he survived, um, that we got our first actual eyewitness who said, hey, there are two white guys, and he gave us a good description. They were about six feet tall, about 200 pounds, had a military bearing to them. Uh, they were driving a white pickup truck. They stole his car, you know, so, you know, we, we had the stolen car and the, and the white pickup truck to go with. That's how we ended up on surveillance on, on uh, the morning of April 11th, you know, uh, the, the car had been stolen, and about 10 days after it was stolen, it was uh, confirmed involved in a bank robbery, uh, again, in, in South Florida. Okay, because we had a U.S. Customs officer at the time going to the bank to cash a check. When he's parking his car, he said he looked over at the, at the front door of the bank, and he sees two guys dressed in, in, in camouflage clothing with ski masks running out of the bank, you know, and he goes, oh, shit, you know. <laughs> so he hunkers down and watches, and he saw them get into the, into the, uh, the, stolen, the, the known stolen car. It was a black Monte Carlo. And he, and he a law enforcement guy, got the, got the actual tag on the car. You know, so he verified that the, uh, the tag that he saw at, at the robbery was the tag on the car that was stolen 10 days before. So that, that's, how, that's how this whole, you know, like 10 or 15 different uh, t- attempted and actual robberies came to a head on the morning of April 11th. So you put the, the vehicle under surveillance. We were out uh, between 130th Street and 185th Street, Southwest Miami. We were we set up in four different locations. You know, uh, we set up at four different locations where there had been previous robberies, and um, we were going to have a, a, a static surveillance and then a rolling surveillance. You know, just kind of like to be in the area uh, in case anything happened. Let, let, let me back up a little bit. Um, the, the supervisor Gordon McNeil, uh, he said, "Hey, let's let's do let's do this." Um, he said, hey, I have a hunch they're going to hit tomorrow, t- tomorrow being Friday, this is Thursday, that he, that he uh, put this out. He said, uh, the last time they hit, they only got $3,000. Normally, I'm sorry, not $3,000, $8,000, $8,000. Normally, when they hit before, they were getting $50,000, you know, $60,000, you know, so they, it's a good payday. He said, uh, the last time they hit, they only got eight, and... Fifty percent of the time they hit on Fridays, you know. The other fifty percent they hit on on the other weekdays, you know. So, he said tomorrow's Friday. They the, their last robbery was uh, was a light haul, and he said it's been two or three weeks, so I think they're due, and that was it. That that's the only information we had, you know, a hunch. So he said, hey, I want to set up surveillance. So you know, he said anybody who's available be down there, and we had a, a briefing. In the area at about uh, eight thirty, yeah, eight eight thirty, and uh, eight thirty a.m. And um, the rest of it, you know, just kind of spread out, you know, and just kind of 
observed, look, looking for the, for the black Monte Carlo, looking for white pickup trucks. And uh, lo and behold, you know, they, uh, they show up in a stolen Monte Carlo. Wow. I mean, it was just... Uh, Gut instinct. Know, just unbelievable, you know. I mean, I, I honestly, uh, I have to be very candid. You know, I, I was like thinking, oh, my God, this is, this is you know, this is crazy. We got nothing. We got no lead, yeah. you know. And uh, what happens? Uh, they show up in a stolen car. I'm thinking, holy cow, well, what, what, what are the odds? Wow. I mean, you know, who knows? You know, I mean, I don't know what the, I mean, I'm not a gambler or anything like that, you know. But, I mean, think about it. What are the odds? And, uh, wow. And the rest of it is just kind of like uh, uh like a like a TV movie, really. You know, it's like, you know, the only thing missing was the music. You know, <laughs> because uh, from the time uh, the case agent, special agent Ben Grogan called out, attention all units, we're behind a black Monte Carlo, uh, Florida tag NTJ eight nine one, until he called out felony car stop. Let's do it. Four minutes. That's, wow. that's uh, I mean, he had four minutes to try to rally the troops to his location, and then formulate a plan, and then execute that plan. So it's all going, this is going down very quickly. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, real quick, you know. And, you know, again, you know, one of the criticisms has been, well, you know, you guys should have had a better plan, you know, since you guys knew they were going to be there. No, we didn't. You know, it was just a hunch. And then the other criticism has been, well, you guys should have notified Metro. Well, we did. We notified, you know, we worked hand in glove with the Metro robbery. You know, but they had a different uh, assignment on Friday. They they were working. You know, I mean, we handle federal stuff. Uh, Metro handles all robberies. You know, they handle you know, you know, Seven Eleven robberies. You know, McDonald robberies, and so on and so forth. You know, they they had a a a, a series of um, uh, convenience store robberies, like Seven Eleven, Circle K's, and stuff like that. So they, they said, hey, we can't help you in the morning, you know, because we're working four to midnight. On the uh, on the on the convenience store robbery, so you know we asked them, but they said no. You know we can't. You know so, and then we notified the patrol units in the uh, southwest um, south east area of uh, of, of uh, Miami where we were, and um, you know I mean the rest of it is like well you know it it, it just kind of like fate. You know uh, you, you hate to say fate, but you know you have to you have to take it with a grain of salt. You know I mean because. You know, even the Bible says, you know, though I saw under the sun, you know, the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, you know, but time and chance happened to them all, you know. And and that was it. I mean, it was time and chance, you know. Um, the, uh, like I said, four minutes, four minutes uh, to, to plan, you know. And then um, the other criticism that, that's been laid on us is, uh, well, you guys, you know, you guys, you know, uh, had a um, what's the word? What's the word that's been used? You, you guys didn't do your car stop right, you know. <laughs> and I have to laugh at people. It's like, dude, there's only two types of stops: compliant and non-compliant. You know, <laughs> you know, compliant means you know when when you get pulled over on the interstate, you know, by the state trooper, you know, you pull pull over to the side and take take your hit. You know, you just take the licking. You know. <laughs> The, you know the other part is non-compliant. You know, and that's when when you see people on on in California speeding away from the cops. You know, so <laughs> you know that usually ends badly. You know, yeah. <laughs> so our our car stop turned into a non-compliant car stop, like from the the get go, right from the beginning, right from the from the first second. You know, as soon as they heard a siren, 
boom, they were they were speeding away or trying to speed away, and uh, you know the rest of it just it turned out into uh, bumper cars. You know we were we were not we were as we were as determined to stop them as they were determined to escape, and you know we were not going to let them escape because we had no clue who they were. I mean these guys were like phantoms. You know they were absolute. I mean we. We didn't even know they were white guys until like the previous, you know, the four weeks. Up until that time, we had no clue. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, we were not going to let them escape. You know, so how so, uh, how long did the car chase go on for before they were stopped? Oh, it didn't. Two blocks. Mm-hmm. I mean, however long it takes you to speed down two blocks. I mean, it's like. Uh, there was four cars involved in in in, in the in the uh, in the immediate car stop. It was three three police cars, three FBI cars, and, and them. And uh, my supervisor was playing catch up behind us. You know, so as as quick as it takes a, a car to go down a 200 yards, and not even that, 150 yards. Okay, and then crash. You know, crash into the side of a of a, of a tree. You know. That's how fast the car stop lasted. It didn't last long, you know. So, and uh, you know, we had the sirens on. We had the, our our police lights on. You know, they knew who we were. I mean, there's no no, no big surprise there, you know. So, um, but they just refused to stop. And uh, as soon as the cars came to rest, uh, like maybe, um, it, 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 there was enough time for people to kind of catch their breath, and. Um, um, you know, shake off the effects of the, of the crashes. Because, I mean, I, I was actually shocked, physically shocked, you know, because our car hit a, hit, a, hit a concrete wall, you know, going about 40, 35, 40 miles an hour, you know. It's like, you know? And, uh, you know, I wasn't wearing my seatbelt, you know, by choice, you know. So um, um, as soon as I uh, shook off the effects of the... Um, uh, of the crash, you know, I, I kind of oriented myself to see what the heck was going on, where, where they were, you know, and I immediately figured out where they were, and I started moving moving in that direction, you know. Um, and as soon as I stepped out of the car, you know, gun, the gunfight was on, you know. The the uh, two suspects opened fire on you guys, and then... Yeah, I heard, uh, I heard the supervisor, who was closer than me, I, I was one of the farthest away uh, when it happened, he uh, he's yelling, FBI, give yourselves up, give up, give up, you know. And then they responded with, uh, they said F you, but they said it with gunfire. <laughs> you know, so, so clear message, yeah. They, they, they didn't they didn't use words; they used uh, nonverbal communication. You know, so <laughs> that nonverbal was a rifle shot. You know. <laughs> so the the second you stepped out of the car, you were in a firefight. Right. There, I mean, I, I, and I was about 50 yards away, you know, and I had to I had to decide, hey, you know, what do I do? I had a shotgun with a double-up buck, which is, you know, on average, the maximum effective range for that is 25 yards, and I was 50 yards away. And my revolver, I mean, I'm pretty good at, you know, with a revolver. Back then I was, you know, at 50 yards, but, man, it's like, I, I, you know. That's a tough shot with was, a pistol, 50 yards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it was they were in a jumble of cars. It was just a big pile of cars. You know, I didn't even know where they were. So the gunfight's on, you know, and I'm thinking, shoot, you know, I, I there's no way. I need to get closer, you know. So I, I ran across uh, the street, and so did my partner, John Hanlon. He ran to the 
slightly to the right, and I went slightly to the left. His uh, his closest point of cover was 40 yards, and my closest point of cover was 50. So it was uh, it was invigorating. You know, it was like holy shit, Batman. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm running, I'm running. I don't even know where the bullets were flying, but you know, you could hear them. You know, like zipping by. You know, you you know how the, you know how they sound. You know, you know, like uh, crack cracking sounds. You know, or <laughs> that type of sound they make. You know, so. Like I said, it was pretty interesting, pretty interesting. And uh, I I almost made it to the gunfight, you know, almost got there. And then I um, I took a, um, well, I mean, I know now I, I took a hit. But at the time that it happened, I, I, I didn't know what had happened. I was running uh, forward to uh, reinforce my supervisor on the left side of the uh, of the scene of the um, of the event. And I was go, trying to get into his left side, and then all of a sudden, instead of running forward, I was, you know, flat on my back looking up at the blue sky, and I'm thinking, what the heck happened here? You know, I had no clue. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, and I, 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 it took me several seconds to, to figure out what the heck was going on. You know, and um, it, it, honestly, it, I honestly don't know how long it took me. It could have been, it could have been, I don't know, um, it could have been a minute. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I honestly don't know because at, at that time, you know, I, I go into, uh, you know, the fight or flight syndrome, mm-hmm. you know, the, um, you know, the time slows down, you, you lose your hearing, you know, motion, you know, you feel like you're moving in slow motion, that type of stuff, you know, so, but I, I could not figure out, I Plus, my, my, I lost all my hearing. I had this horrendous ringing in my ears, um, and uh, I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on, you know. And, um, of course, bullets were still flying over my head, and I'm thinking, holy shit, you know. I mean, I, I need to do something here. You know, why the hell, you know, I said, you, I, I kept calling myself names, you know, because I'm thinking, you were stupid. For I thought I had run into the back of a supervisor's car. You know, I was trying to cut the corner qu- too close, that that was my perception. I I cut the corner too close and I I uh, clipped it with my uh, right hip and I knocked myself back. You know, so uh, I had no sensation of pain, no, nothing. I mean, no 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 sensation at all. You know, so um, I'm thinking, what the heck? You know, and it, it must have been about a minute before I actually made a physical examination of my arm because I was trying to use my left arm to push myself up and. Uh, I, I couldn't. I think, what the heck's going on here? You know. So um, I had to make a a visual inspection, and that's when I realized I'd been shot. You know. I'm thinking, holy cow! You know. <laughs> I said, no wonder my arm doesn't work. You know. It's all it's toast. You know. So um, you know, at that point in time, you know, and people ask me, well, what's it feel like to get shot? Honestly, it was kind of disappointing. You know, it was like no sensation whatsoever, you know, which is nature's way of, of, of saying, hey, dude, you know, you, you're you're you've taken a bad hit, but, you know, you can still survive. You know, you can still you can still right. move, you know, and, and that's what I did. It was it was uh, it's, uh, the human body is a fantastic machine, you know, because that's what happened. I felt no pain, no sensation whatsoever. And uh, physically, mentally, I said, holy sh-. I mean, uh, you know, I went from apprehension you know, the, the the closer we got mm-hmm. to the subjects, and then you know uh, we were right behind them, and then some you know somebody said, "Hey, felony car stuff." You go from apprehension to a little bit of you know a little bit more, maybe a little fear, 
and then the, the the car chase starts, you know, and then there's um, you know crashing and banging, you know, and um, you know then you crash into the wall, and then the shots are fired, you know, then you go into like a real fear, you know, <laughs> that's what I would call real fear. I mean, and I'm not ashamed to say it, you know, but that that's what happened. However, when I looked at my arm, you know, and and realized that I'd been shot. Then, you know, I went into a, a, a level above fear, and that was called, I would call that terror. Okay, mm-hmm. I was terrified, you know, at the time, and I'm thinking, holy shit, how am I going to survive? How am I going to be able to fight for my life, you know, when, when my left arm is completely destroyed? I mean, because the uh, rifle round hit me right right square, you know, between the, the wrist and the elbow. I mean, oh, it just man. completely just exploded my arm out, you know. Uh, the the two bones were shattered. You know, it was there was nothing holding my hand up. You know, it was just a like a rag doll. You know, a rag. You know, hanging off my arm. You know, so at that point I went from fear to terror. I'm thinking, shit. You know, it's it's going to be hard enough to you know to fight for survival with two hands. Now now I only have one. You know, so but I I've had a lot of uh, first aid classes, and part of it was you know knowledge. The other part was instinct. Uh, I knew instinctively. I knew that I, I was severely injured, but I, I was not going to die immediately. I mean, I, I could mm. I could sense it. I mean, I knew I was bleeding, but I knew I had several minutes. Okay, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. It was instinct, you know. So I just you know ignored my arm and I grabbed the shotgun again and I started you know scanning for a threat because I, there were, the shots were still being fired over my head. I'm behind a car at this point. Shots are still being fired over my head, you know, and I'm thinking, hey, you know, this this guy can still come around the side of the car or roll over the hood of the car and put a bullet in my head, you know. So I said that would be that would be a, <laughs> a bad bad option, you know. So I, I started focusing on on continuing to to scan and, and survive, you know. Like I said, my my arm was secondary at that point, and um, the gunfight lasted so long that. Uh, the shooting went from it's hard to describe on the phone uh the shooting went from my like directly in front of my nose it it started moving from from my nose off to the right to the right and farther to the right and farther way farther to the right so i'm thinking well everything's moving to the right so i started crawling uh behind the cars to try to see what i could see over on the right side because i couldn't see anything with the cars in the way and that's when i saw uh, that my fellow agents, uh, three fellow agents were down, you know, and I, I didn't know whether they were alive or dead. So I said, oh, my God, you know. So, and at the same time, I saw a pair of legs running from the rear of uh, one of the FBI cars towards the front. And that's when I engaged. Uh, I didn't even know who it was, you know, but I, I knew that my fellow agents, I knew who, who, where they, who they were and where they were. So I figured, well, you know, all three agents are down on that side. I said, it has to be a bad guy, you know. So I didn't even look at his face. I just stuck the shotgun, the shotgun out with uh, with my right hand on the ground, and I aimed. But uh, to this day, I don't remember firing that round, you know. Uh, it's called traumatic amnesia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I was shooting in the direction of three agents, you know, and I'm thinking, shit, you know, if I miss the, um, if I miss the shot, uh, my my pellets might actually hit other agents and maybe kill them, you know. So I said I don't want to be responsible for that, you know. So uh, that's that's what's called traumatic amnesia, you know. So I I don't remember making the shot, even though 
the evidence shows that uh, right. th- I, I had five shots in my shotgun and I fired all five shots. Plus, you know, the, um, the subject had uh, shotgun pellet hits to the feet, you know, so, <laughs> so it's kind of a moot Seems point, plausible you know, that fired. that was you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, so then I, I continue moving to the right, you know, trying to flank them, you know, and then by the time I moved, you know, they were already inside the FBI. They were, they were in the FBI car trying to escape. You know, there, there's no doubt about it in my mind, you know, so. The, 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 um, the perpetrators were trying to get into one of your vehicles and escape. No, no, they weren't trying. They were actually in uh, one of the one of the FBI cars, yeah. And they were they were leaning over the steering column, you know, looking at it like, uh, you know, where are the keys? You know, mm-hmm. how, how do we get the keys in there? I mean, what the heck? And immediately became obvious to me that they were trying to escape. And the only avenue of escape they had was to run over uh, three three FBI agents who were down. And yeah, who, who were down around and behind the car. And I said, no way. There's no way that these guys are gonna you know, going to accomplish that task because I, I'm not going to let them. Because if they back the car up, um, they will definitely. If they're not, if the agents aren't dead, they will be dead after they get run over, you know. So I said, no way. <laughs> so that's when I employed the the shotgun one-handed, you know, um, behind the car. And I, I tried to put as much, uh, as much lead into the compartment of the car as I could, you know. And as it turns out, um, uh, I don't think I fired four rounds into the the compartment. I don't think any of the pellets had hit anybody. You know, I don't think because the um, the forensics, the uh, the crime scene uh, uh, investigation doesn't show any pellets. I mean, the the perpetrators had had bullet wounds on them, but none of them were were shotgun pellets. Ed, you know? Ed, but, but just out of curiosity, how were you able to shuck the shotgun one-handed? Uh, I was sitting on my butt on the ground, and I had my back up against a. Uh, one of the cars, and I was on the uh, on the uh, back right side of the car, and I uh, I was sitting, and I, I when I fired the first shot, I I used the lip of the of the bumper mm-hmm. as my uh, as my support hand, and uh, I, when I fired, um, I was kind of pushed back, and since I was already in a sitting position, I said, "Well, you know what? This is easy, and I can just." You know, lean back against the car, let the shot in. I had the shotgun in my right hand. I let it slide through my hand between my legs, and my my, my knees were up. You know, my, my, my legs were flat on the ground, straight out. They were up in a crouched position. So I, I pinched the shotgun with my thighs, used my right hand to rack the action, and then took my right hand back to the trigger guard, rolled over to my left again, and placed the shotgun on the lip of the car, and fired, you know, that's how I fired wow. four shots. And, uh, you know, the rest of it is it just kind of, <laughs> like I said, you know, none of the, uh, none of the actual rounds had, had hit the, um, hit the, uh, a- a- anyone inside the car. But you, you expended the rest of the shotgun shells into the, into that vehicle. Right. right. I ran out of ammo. And at that point in time, you know, I, um, I, uh, this is the first time I actually took my, my eyes off the threat. I, um, uh, actually called out to um, the agents across the street. There were two agents, uh, Gil Arantia and Ron Reisner, were across the street providing uh, overwatch, uh, kind of like uh, cover fire. And um, 
they, uh, I, I yelled at them. I said, it's okay, come on over. And they didn't know where the bad guys were, so they, they were yelling at me, stay down, stay down, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, you know, they don't know, they don't know the gunfight's over, you know. Well, unbeknownst to me, it wasn't over because a witness said that the, uh, the passenger in the driver's side of the car, I mean, the, the perpetrator in, uh, on the, in the driver's seat, got out of his car and walked within about 10 feet of me, you know, behind cover and fired his revolver at me. You know, but I never heard it because I said before um, my uh, my hearing was completely toast. You know, so <clears throat> so when I yelled at, at the agents across the street that uh, it's okay, come on over, they uh, it dawned on me. I'm thinking, holy cow, you know, um, we're gonna die. <laughs> you know, because by that point, I mean it's been like at least three to four minutes since I've been shot. And I was starting to lose consciousness, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm thinking, we, you know, we are going to die here. I mean, there's just no no doubt about it. But um, something interesting happened. You know, it's like um, I went through, uh, uh, you know, you know the uh, the five stages of um, what are they grief? The yeah, five stages of grief. You know, denial, anger, and then uh, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. I went through those except for, for depression. I mean, I, obviously, uh, I didn't have time to get depressed, you know, but I went through those four, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, acceptance. I went through those like, an, you know, it was an accelerated uh, process. You know, mm-hmm. I went through that in about probably 10 seconds. And then I came to the realization. I, I accepted. I said, hey, you know what, Ed, you're screwed, man. You're going to die. I mean, I actually was talking to myself, you know. At the same time, I'm passing out. I'm, I'm trying to shake my head to, to try to stay awake. And uh, it's like something something happened, you know. It's like uh, it's like a metamorphosis, you know. It's like once I accepted that I was going to die, all fear left. Mm-hmm. I was no longer fearful, you mm-hmm. know. And um, I told my friends, I say I became the most dangerous man on scene, you know. Because what are you going to do to somebody who's already accepted death, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Nothing. I mean, what can you do to him? Right, right. So. I, I was fearless, you know, but at the same time, I still held uh, some hope of survival, you know, because I was still able to function. And I looked up and down the street. I looked north and I, I looked south. And uh, by that time, the, the gunfight had lasted so long that uh, there must have been, I swear to God, uh, 20 uh, fire engines and ambulances on the north side and another 20 on the south side. But they had set up a perimeter. You know, and, and, I, and that's what also reinforced my thought. You know, these guys don't know the gunfight's over. You know, only I know that. You know, so I said, hey, you know, I need to let them know it's over. So the last thing in the world I wanted to do was stand up because, I mean, I was just totally weak. You know, I mean, I, I, I could had no strength left. So I said, what the heck? I'm going to die anyway, so uh, maybe I can do something to survive. You know, so my uh, desire to stand up was to show everybody that it was a safe zone you know the lg was clear but at the same time you know i'm thinking you know what if i'm going to die i'm going to take those two bastards with me so when i stood up i drew my revolver and then i i went around the the back of the car and i started moving in on the uh on the subjects inside the fbi car Mm -hmm. so uh i i I was kind of shuffling along you know i mean people witnesses said that i actually uh kind of half jogged half it wasn't a run but it wasn't a walk either. They said I kind of like shuffled forward, you know, as quickly as I could. I don't remember it that way. Uh, I, I just remember, you know, standing up, setting a position and firing and then taking 
a couple of more steps forward, firing, moving forward, setting, firing, and I did that six times, and uh, until I got to the actual window of the car, you know, which, wow. um, and and uh, I actually, you know, those shots actually hit, you mm-hmm. know, I fired six shots and five shots hit the subjects, which ended up uh, killing them, you know, so. Um, at that point, the guys across the street had run. They, they saw me stand up, so they ran across. They had, like, 50 yards, you know, to, to run across. And then the additional, like, 15 yards from, you know, to the actual subjects. So they ran across the street to reinforce me. And, and when I fired my last shot, you know, they actually showed. I, I saw them, felt them uh, on either side of me, uh, you know, to reinforce in case anything happened. And um, they said, Ed, put your gun away, it's over, you know. And, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I heard that, you know, and I, I put my gun in my holster, and then I, I tell people, I said, training, training, training. Uh, when I put my gun in my holster, I actually snapped the holster, you know, to secure the weapon in the holster. <laughs> <laughs> just in case. I, yeah, you know, just like training, you know. It's yeah. like, uh, you know, you do it 100,000 times, you know. It just comes automatically, you know. So, But uh, after that, I, I took about four or five steps backward, kind of like stumbling, you know, and then I fell on my butt, and, and I was, you know, flat out on the street, you know, and, and the rest of it, uh, it was over. At that point, man, a pandemonium hit, you know. I mean, I right, I, right. I, I actually came down off the, uh, off the adrenaline, you know, and my hearing started coming back, you know, and at that point, you know, an interesting thing happened. Um, you know, I mentioned before that I, I didn't I didn't feel any pain. Right. I, I didn't even know I'd been shot, that type of stuff. Man, when the adrenaline left, oh, my <laughs> God. I was in agony. I mean, I was like, I mean, the medics gave me two two shots of morphine, you know, and they, they put my arm in a... In a uh, in one of those uh, balloons, uh, what do they call it, splints? Uh-huh, yep. And to, uh, to uh, kind of immobilize the arm, you know, to keep it from moving. And uh, one of them was walking by, you know, and I grabbed him by the ankle with my right arm, and I, or he, I grabbed him his spandex. I said, give me another shot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. And I, felt, I felt like a damn addict, you know, give me another shot. I need another hit, you know. So... <laughs> And the, the guy said, dude, we've given you enough to put out an, uh, a horse. He said, if we give you another shot, you're going to die. I said, man, the way this pain's going, shit, I'll die. You know? But, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they took care of me right away, and they put me on a, on a gurney and took me in, in, a, in an ambulance to the hospital. But, you know, it wasn't until I got to the hospital that they actually gave me some good stuff. I guess the, the medics didn't have the good stuff. And because I got to the hospital, it's like, man, there's hardly any pain, you know. After that, you know, but man, you know, when, uh, when, when that painkiller wears off, it's horrible, you know, absolutely horrible. So you had, but that, I mean, that's pretty much the end, you know, that's kind of a, a pretty, pretty quick, uh, down and dirty, you know, story, you know, so. And you had eliminated the two perpetrators. Uh, what, what was the outcome for the three FBI agents that you saw down in front of the vehicle? Oh, that's the unfortunate part. On that side of the vehicle, uh, Ben Grogan was was uh, dead on the scene, and then uh, uh, Jerry Dove was dead on the scene. And the third agent, uh, John Hanlon, he he survived. He was shot uh, once through the 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 gun hand, and once in each thigh. So he was shot three times. So uh, you know you you know what rifle rounds can do to a human you know body. I mean, it's pretty devastating. I mean. those hits, uh, those rifle hits are, are 
damn devastating, you know. And uh, our supervisor, Gordon McNeil, he was shot uh, through the, you know, on, next to the neck on the shoulder. And he was ducking for cover, and he was shot, you know, uh, the, the, the round went down through his, his torso, you know, from on the right side and went down and hit his spinal cord, ricocheted off his spinal cord, and then uh, was kicked back to the right and uh, and shattered into his right lung, you know. So uh, he was probably the worst hit, uh, you know, with a rifle round, you know. So uh, he was in the hospital for, for three weeks, you know, recovering, you know. Uh, obviously, the lung hit was, was pretty, pretty significant, you know. So, But uh, in total, there were... Eight FBI agents and two bank robbers um, in an area, I would say, uh, about 30 feet by 30 feet. You know, it wasn't a big area. You know, and people think, oh, it's like a big parking lot gun. But no, it was like, it was up close and Right personal, on top of each you know? other, yeah. Yeah. And it was 30 feet by 30 feet for the majority of the shots were fired. And there were 150 shots fired in, in about four or five minutes, you know, so it was pretty intense, man. It was like being inside of a building, you know, being you know, inside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's inside like the room we're recording in right now. I mean, that's yeah. a very yeah, small yeah. area. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you had a lot of obstacles, you had a lot of cars, you know, a lot of cover, you know, but I'm telling you, I, I was shot from a distance of about, Oh, the width of a car, plus another three feet, I, well, that would be, what, uh, 12 feet. I was shot uh, from 12 feet away. Gordon McNeil was shooting at the at the driver uh, from a car width away, and the way he had his arm extended out, so he was probably shooting at the driver um, from about, his his weapon was about five or six feet from, from the driver. The problem was, you know, if, if you've been in, in, in Florida at all, you know, you, all, those, all those cars on there have tinted windows, and it's not not the glass that's tinted; it's the the plastic uh, right. uh, that's on the glass. So when rounds were going through, it wouldn't shatter. I mean, the glass would shatter, but it wouldn't it wouldn't fall down, you know. So this plastic material just kept kept the glass up, and, and you know, in some cases, you know, ten fifteen rounds would have to go through a window before it would collapse, you know, because, uh, you know, that's, that's how the, uh, the film, you know, that, that uh, tinting film, it works. So when it started taking hits, it's, it was spiderweb, so you really couldn't see clearly into the car, you know. So even though he was about six, seven feet away from the subject, the subject was hunkered down, you know, and he wasn't, you know, presenting a, a big target. He was hunkered down, you know, so it was hard to hit. Plus, he's taking in incoming fire too, you know. So <laughs> that kind of kind of puts a damper on things. And I imagine that you had to have reconstructive surgery on your arm. Mm-hmm. I had uh, a total of uh, seven surgeries, seven major surgeries, and three minor ones. I think I had a total of, you know, if you count everything, uh, ten, ten surgeries over the course of uh, two years and three months. Yeah. The, the the last part of the recovery was was just recovery, you know. But in the first year, I had about ten surgeries in uh, in total. And this shootout, of course, became uh, a case study for you know everything that came after, and really changed tactics and, and weapons, and, and 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 really was a. a a learning moment, you know, for the law enforcement community. 
but I, I was wondering if you could tell us yourself, I mean, what, w- what was the fallout um, from all of this? Were you guys hailed as heroes? Were you decried as, as guys who screwed up or botched the job? I mean, I, I'm just wondering, like, how, how did the law enforcement community and the Bureau um, regard this in the immediate aftermath? Both. In really? the immediate aftermath, it was both, you know, it's like, hey, you know, they screwed up somehow and blah, blah, blah. But see, when all the facts came out, then, you know, people started changing their tune, you know, because uh, it, it was uh, it was nothing short of uh, heroic, you know. I mean, nobody took a step back, you know. Um, outgunned, you know, there's a, a big thing about outgun, you know. Uh, you know, there's a, a line in one of the, uh, the spaghetti westerns with uh, Clint Eastwood, I forget, uh, a fistful of dollars, something like that. When, when one of the Mexican bandits, you know, is is challenging uh, Clint, he says, "Hey, when a man with a forty-five meets a man with a rifle, the man with the forty-five is a dead man." You know, and that's true. If 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 you're going up, if you're going up against an assault rifle with a pistol, man, you're yeah. you're yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> you're toast, man. Yeah. Now, you know. If you've got four people with guns, you know, spread out, you know, in a in a semicircle, you know, or something like that, you know, or behind good cover against one guy with an assault rifle, then you know, then you know, you've got a pretty good chance, you know, you 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 maneuver, you 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 know, you you have to be smart, you know, about it. So there were eight of us and two of them, you know. So that's what it ended up being, you know. It's like, you know, four four guys with handguns, you know. Uh, against uh, one guy with a with an assault rifle, but I'm telling you, boy, you know it's like that assault rifle. When you're hit with an assault rifle, man, you know it. <laughs> there, there is no doubt about the fact that you've been hit. You know, so so I mean, it, it cuts both ways. You know, it, it, the philosophy is like uh, you know maybe maybe not. You know, it's like you know uh, is it even not even. So that part of it caused the. Uh, and, and that's where one thing that's one thing where I really praise the bureau, you know, the FBI, because they saw that and they immediately asked for Congress for for funding. Uh, by the end of uh, by the end of my recovery, they had purchased uh, one MP5 semi-automatic submachine gun with 30 round magazines, and or one uh, uh, sawed-off sh- uh, shotgun. For for uh, every two agents, so every every team of two would have a submachine gun or a shotgun. Okay. Additionally, they authorized the the personal purchase, personal carry of semi-automatic uh, assault rifles like the uh, AR-15s and stuff. So I went out and got myself an AR-15 once I recovered. You know, so <laughs> you know, and I got about you know twelve. 30 round magazines you know, <laughs> that I carried in a, in a, uh, in a carry pouch, you know, one of those like drop bag pouches, you know, mm-hmm. so, and, um, they, uh, started training SWAT, more SWAT guys, you know, with, and, uh, by the way, I forgot to mention that, that we had, we had three SWAT guys on, on surveillance and they were, they were, you know, time and chance, you know, uh, the race is not always to the swift. Those three SWAT agents were not involved in the car stop. They they were farther south, and they, and they were responding to the oh, call. Wow. You know, saying, "Hey Ben, where are you? We're at 120th Street. You know, uh, car stop. Let's let's do it." They did not get to the uh, to the shootout until it was over. 
one agent had a fully automatic MP5. The uh, oh, second geez. agent had a, a 12-gauge shotgun. And the third agent, you know, had a, an M16. Okay. Which would have changed and everything. In, in it would have, yeah, it would have changed everything. Yeah, absolutely. He had an M16 rifle. SWAT guy, fully auto, full auto. You know, he had several magazines. But by the time he got to the scene, the gunfight was over. You know, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just fate, you know, time and chance. Now, that part of it, you know, the, the weapon side of it, you know, it went, uh, I mean, the Bureau went out and got, you know, as as much firepower as as was logical. You know, people say, well, you know, if you had a choice, what would you carry? Well, I'd carry a full auto M16. But the problem is, you know, as law enforcement agencies and officers, we have to be responsible. You know, you cannot carry a forty-four Magnum because if you if you shoot it, I mean, where the hell is that round going to stop? You know, it's right, going to stop in right. Kansas. You know, by the time, by the time it stops, you know, so we have to be responsible for our, our, our rounds. You know, it's not like you know some of these cities. You know, where you hear people, some poor child gets shot through a window. You know, because some gangbanger. You know. Fired or fired a, uh, a pistol two blocks away, you know. So, so we 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 do have to be responsible in that regard. The other change was a huge change was ballistics. Okay, ballistics, ballistics, ballistics. Okay, Jerry Dove shot Platt in in, uh, in like in the first minute and a half of the shooting. He shot him through the right bicep. The round hit his uh, the side of his chest wall penetrated his lung, and it was directly in line with his heart. It was a great shot. I call it the, a million-dollar shot. But uh, I'm told that the, the the bullet that he fired, you know, was a 115-grain uh, silver-tip hollow point. You know, it, it just, it was too light. It was too light of a round. If it had penetrated another inch and a half, two inches, it would have hit him in the heart. But it, it didn't. It, it stopped you know, uh, just short of the heart, and the, the gunfight could have been could have been way different otherwise. You know, but um, you know the ballistics thing. You know, uh, people say, well, it hit him, it severed his brachial artery in his right arm, and it it uh, it exploded his lung. You know, he's bleeding internally. Okay, but um, the argument has been, was that a survivable or non-survivable hit? Okay, and it's really a moot point. You know. Uh, he ended up dying. Okay, I mean, he got some extra hits on him, you know, but it it doesn't really matter whether it was survivable or not survivable because from that point when he's hit through the lung, he continues to fight, right. and he will shoot. Uh, he will shoot uh, Jerry Dove twice, and the second time he mm-hmm. shot him, he kills him. Jeez. He shoots John Hamlin three times. He shoots. He shot Ben Grogan twice and and kills Ben Grogan. So even though he was shot, that quote unquote non-survivable hit, he continued to fight and he ends up shooting and and uh, three agents and he kills two of them. Okay. God. At some point in time, it really does become a non-survivable hit because at autopsy they said he had lost about fifty percent of his forty to fifty percent of the blood in his system. That's okay. okay that's called a, a class four hematoma or some some something like that i forget what the word is but uh when they say hey when you use when you lose 40 percent of the blood in your system you're you're running real close to not being able to get revived to, to you know i mean because your your blood you know your your system just start, starts shutting down you know so the ballistics part of it you know that that uh 
they did a lot of research, you know, in, into uh, you know what bullets really do inside a human target, you know. So um, the um, that changed. Now the other the other thing that a lot of people and, and I just went through a lecture. I, I lectured a, a group of law enforcement guys last week. You, you know this probably better than most. Okay, there are two philosophies out there. There's a law enforcement philosophy, and then there's a military philosophy. Sure. <laughs> And the law enforcement philosophy, you know, it's like, hey, you take you take incoming shots, incoming rounds, you know, you you try to um, get out of the kill zone, take a uh, barricade position of cover, call for backup, and then hunker down, you know. In the military, you you know better than I do, you know, you take you take incoming fire, you return fire and assault assault the position, assault the ambush. Okay. Uh, that's what happened. You had the, these two guys were 101st Airborne, okay, and you could see in their movements they flanked the agents and at the uh, at, in in Ben's car. Platt laid down suppression fire and he assaulted their position. Okay, we're taught you know to hunker down behind cover, fire, shoot, you know, call for backup. That's exactly what we did. So those two philosophies came, you know, came head to head, um, and that's the result. You know, and, and I lectured last week. You know, I said, guys, you know, you need to be aware that there are people out there, that, especially now in the United States in this era after Desert Storm and Desert Shield and. You know, son of Desert Shield and all these all these different programs that we've got. You know, there's a lot of military folks out there that have a lot of good training. You know, and if they choose to do evil, you know, it's like you need to be prepared. You know, you you you're we're trained to hunker down behind cover, and they're trained to assault the position, to flank, lay lay down suppression fire, and and you know through fire and, and maneuver and assault the position. You know, so I mean uh, that, that's just two 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 uh, two you know different philosophies you know and, and like i said they came into clash that day how did uh how did this end up influencing how fbi agents and other law enforcement officers were trained the fbi at least i mean i can speak i can speak from, from an fbi perspective 50 percent of all training now is combat training okay we we, we teach marksmanship you know because every agency has to has to be able to justify you know uh you know, in case an officer's involved in a, in a shooting, they have to be able to show in court, hey, listen, this officer is a, an 88% shooter, you know, historically. He, he fires at, a, at an 88% level. You know, here's his training records, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Now, beyond that, okay, that, that's for liability purposes. You know, not for survival purposes, you know, you have to, you, we've started teaching uh, officers and agents combat shooting. Shooting from inside cars, shooting from around cars, moving and shooting, you know, shooting from one position, you know, moving to a second position, shooting and moving targets, you know, multiple assailants, you know, uh, drawing weapons, uh, you know, you, you, you're in your car, you have a sidearm, how do you get to your long weapon, where do you keep your long weapon, you know, shooting long weapons from inside the car, you know, shooting, you know, I mean, it's, it's just great. I mean, uh, you know, we have mock uh, combat cities now, like the military. You 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 kick down a door and then you you go in with a with a, a long weapon or a handgun and, and you assault or you assault you engage multiple targets. You know, there's a, a, a scenario. It's like a you know a bad guy has a hostage. All you see is you know part of his head. You know, do you take the shot or not? The, or not? You know, 
well, he's got a gun. He's going to either shoot you or the hostage. So you have to make a quick decision. You know, so it's it's improved. Uh, I would say a hundred percent. You know, but there's always room for more improvement. Sure. You know, and uh, I, I went uh, to a training scenario last week that was outstanding. I mean, absolutely. You know, car stops. You know, there 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 are more training in car stops. You know, and it's like. Um, I mean, you you get a four thousand pound machine, you know, being chased by four or five other four four thousand pound machines. I mean, that, that's tough, man. I mean, you know, uh, everybody everybody worries about the liability, you know. But beyond that, I mean, it's like hey, when the cars stop. I mean, <laughs> how many how many uh, California car chases do we have to watch on TV to realize it's like, man, this stuff is is dangerous, you know? Yeah. Um, so the FBI is doing more car, car stop training. And uh, shooting, you know, again, shooting from inside cars, shooting around cars, you know, that type of stuff, you know. So, um, you know, I mean, it, it's improved, like I said, 100%, you know. How about for you personally, like on a, on a more personal level, how did all this impact you? I, I mean, something you said really kind of resonated with me when you were talking about how you, you had this intense fear and then you got over it, like you went through those stages very quickly. I was wondering if that was a feeling that stuck with you after the fact. Well, yes and no. I mean, like I said, you know, I I don't want to give you the impression that I'm good at two shoes, you know. But <laughs> I mean, I I was um, I mean I was raised, you know, Catholic, you know, from a Hispanic you know family, you know, in South Texas. You know, my mom used to beat the crap out of us, you know, when we didn't go to church, but. You know, we won't go there, you know, so, <laughs> you know, but, uh, I mean, you know, I, I, I am, I am, you know, religious and spiritual and stuff, you know, but uh, when I train folks, I say, hey, listen, you know, do you believe in luck? You know, in a, a lot of hardcore cops go, no, I don't believe in luck, you know, the luck, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, you don't believe in luck? I can, I can, I can respect that. But let me ask you this question. Would you rather be lucky or unlucky? <laughs> that kind of gets them. It's like, Argh. Well, tell me, would you rather be lucky or unlucky? Well, I'd rather be lucky. I said, okay, that's that's good. Now, if you have a choice between living and dying, you know, uh, what would you choose? Living, of course, you know, and and that's what I tell them. I said, this that's what this is all about. I mean, if you have a choice, you know, would you would you do something to help you survive or not do it? And there there is so much concern nowadays about liability. It's like. Screw liability, dude. I mean, I want to be around to worry about liability. I don't want to be, you know, carried, you know, <laughs> right. by by six people, you know. And and I think we've gotten so our society's just gotten so out of whack, you know, that uh, you know officers are afraid to respond. You know, it's like, hey, dude, I'm old school. You know, I mean, if I see a threat, I'm going to address that threat. You know, it's like, you know, yeah, but what about this? What I, dude, you have a legal right to defend your life against death or serious bodily harm you have a right to do that for your partner and you have a right to do that for the citizens of the united states okay that's the law okay that's simple now i don't want to get into this politically corrupt stuff correct stuff you know but hey you know i'm not going to lose my life you know over some politically correct crap you know and that's what i tell officers i said by all means you need to follow the law by all means you know but you're not paid to, to get killed that's what I tell him. Right. I said, you know, if if that's if that's your contract, then I'd, I'd probably go, you know, work at McDonald's or something, you know, because you know nobody's paid to get killed. You know, it's like you know you have an absolute right to defend yourself. You know, so that's what I tell him. I said, hey, you need to have the mindset that you are going to survive 
and at the end of the day, you're going to go home to your family, okay? And, you know, sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of times, or most of the time, survival is ugly. You know, when you get when you get down and dirty, I mean, you know, you, you I'm, I'm sure you know better than I do, you know, how getting down and dirty can, can be pretty awful, you know? But that's what I tell these guys. It's like, hey, you know, you can be a righteous man, you can be a righteous woman, you know, but when it comes time to survival, it can be pretty ugly, you know, and uh, you need to get ugly sometimes. And did you uh, end up coming back to work and, and retiring out of the FBI eventually? Yes, I did. You know, it took me, like I said, 27 months to, to be, uh, to, to come off light duty because my, my, my arm, you know, it took, my arm was shattered into like a hundred pieces, you know, and uh, they put it together with rods and, and uh, plates and pins and stuff, you know. So it, it took it took about, uh, like I said, 20, 27 months to, for it to heal. And uh, after that, you know, I, uh, I, I, you know, I wanted to get back in the field. They wanted me to go into management. You know, people would would counsel me, saying, "Hey, man, you know, you paid your dues. You know, go go uh, go into management." You know, it's like, eh, you know, I. I you know, I can't be a manager. You know, I'll, <laughs> you know, I, I like to be out in the field. You know, uh, uh, you know, talking, talking to criminals. You know, talking to, to you know, the bad guys. You know, and uh, and and that's what I decided to do. So after after uh, the, the FBI was kind enough to send me to Quantico, uh, the training academy, for for two years. You know, while I recovered, and then after after I recovered, I, I requested a transfer back to Miami. And um, I ended up working uh, undercover narcotics cases you wow. know, for probably 15 years till I retired. Ed, that's unreal. I mean, that that took the. I, I'm familiar. I was familiar with this incident, but not nearly at this level of depth. And hearing it from you directly has been amazing. Like that took grit. What you did out there. And uh, I appreciate you telling this story um, with some humor uh, mixed in there because, I mean, this is like, one, it is a dark thing. You know, two agents were lost. You had to kill the two perpetrators, although they had, yeah. it, they had it coming. But, I mean, you, you, yeah. you got to laugh sometimes, otherwise you'd be crying, you know. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And it's been, it's been over 30 years now. But the thing is, the, the point that I tell people, I said, hey, you know, I mean, people say, hey, you did a heroic thing. You know, it's like, hey, guys, you know, I showed up. You know, the real heroes are Ben and Jerry, okay, yeah. Ben Grogan, Jerry Dove, you know. None of us took a step back, okay, and they certainly didn't. You know, they, they gave, you know, they gave the full measure, okay. They gave me enough time to regroup and, and uh, to be able to come up with a plan and, and try to flank these, these two, uh, these two uh, killers, you know. And in the end, you know, uh, they, they, they did give me the time to, to mm-hmm. do that, you know, and I was able to to gather up enough strength, you know, to, to, to move forward and, and, and the gunfight, you know, but, you know, it's just really not about me. It's about Ben and Jerry, you know, and uh, like I said, the, the arrest team, not one person took a step back, you know, and, and that's all you ask. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, the guy to the left, the guy to the right, you know, you, you're doing the job for them, you know, and, uh, you know, of course, you know, uh, you know, you do it, you do it for the, for the public too, you know, but, uh, you know, they, they're the real heroes. They're the true heroes. You know, I, I like I said, I, I just kind of showed up, you know, so. <laughs> and, and then you went back for more after, after you, you got pieced back together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of a, an odd person, you know, so. <laughs> well, 
can, can you tell us what you're up to today? Are you enjoying retirement, or uh, are you still uh, well, doing actually, work? Well, uh, actually, I, I, once I retired, you know, I, I started uh, working contract work, uh, mm-hmm. government contracting. I worked for a company in Alexandria for about four or five years, and then a buddy of mine said, "Hey, Ed, you know, uh, they're looking for police trainers, police advisors, you know, in, in, uh, to help the uh, the uh, service, you know, military services." I said, "Oh, good, you know." So he he gave me a link, and I signed up, you know, and I ended up doing uh, four years in Iraq. You know, I was a, a <laughs> wow. police advisor in Iraq uh, to for the, the uh, Marines. The pit teams? Well, we call it LEPS. It was the law enforcement professionals. We were going in with uh, with the military units to help them do crime scenes and, and oh, uh, wow. site exploitation, you know, that type of stuff. Awesome. And uh, and uh, I, I ended up doing four years there. Of course, you know, the, in the four years, you know, the, the, our, our, our mission, you know, transition, you know, we went from, when I got there, they were still doing, they were still, still doing a lot of shooting, you know, but, but towards the end, you know, everything had kind of settled down, I guess, to a, a reasonable piece, you know, and, and then I, I was, uh, working at, uh, Baghdad headquarters, you know, trying to gather intelligence, you know, from, mm-hmm. from police agencies. And then my last year there was with the state department, you know, they, they took over for the military and that state department ended the program, you know, because it was just, I don't know, it just got too expensive or something, you know, so, and then after that, I went to uh, Mexico city for a year to help train Mexican cops. And after that, I went to Belize you know, sunny Belize for a, a year nice to country. help train Belizean cops, you know, and now I'm back in the States, you know, and I've just, you know, uh, I've been trying to write my book for, yeah. um, since 2005, you know, and, and, you know, it, it just, I, I kept hitting, uh, you know, roadblocks and, you know, people just didn't, you know, uh, uh, literary agents didn't care people you know said hey, this is a crap book but you know so it kind of it kind of you know discouraged me but then when i got back to the states i said hey you know what i'm going to do this i don't care if i have to self-publish so um i uh self-published uh, my book last year and uh you know just you know been out there uh doing training conferences and and some law enforcement agencies helped me to just come in I mean, asked me to just come in and help train some of their troops and stuff. Like I said, I was just in Boston last week, you know, uh, talking to a group of uh, officers, you know, about car stops and, and, you know, lessons learned and that type of stuff, and, which was good because, you know, I was told by some of the instructors that uh, some of my, uh, like a large percentage of my comments, my, my uh, lecture was uh, validation for their training. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, well, that's good. I mean, I, I'm glad I helped validate uh, validate the training for them. You know, so, but that's it. You know, pretty much. You know, I'm a trainer. I uh, I, I you know try to advertise my book um, and uh, just kind of you know working out working out of the home. You know, so. Well, uh, what's the name of your book, and where can people find it? Uh, the name of the book is uh, FBI Miami Firefight. And uh, people can find it at uh, edmorellis, one word, dot com. And they can order it uh, online, you know. Right on. And, and the story, uh, obviously, it includes the uh, the 86 firefight we were talking about today. Right. Is there anything else in it that uh, that people should know exactly. about? Well, you know, I mean, it, it has a little bit of my uh, my background, you know, uh, childhood background, you know, and then uh, a little bit of my military history. But most most of it, most of the book is just strictly the the case. Mm-hmm. It's a, really a case study of of the uh, the the events leading up to the shooting, the events during the shooting, and then post post shooting. 
and uh, lessons lessons learned. You know, so um, I think it's a good read. You know, uh, it's more of a uh, yeah, more of a lessons learned. You know, not not a training manual. I mean, that would be you know that would be <laughs> outrageous for me to say, but it's a uh, it's a historical event, and uh, you know, people tell me it's just a, it's just a plain downright good story. You know, so <laughs> it's unreal, Ed. And before we let you go, Ed, um, almost four years to the day of the firefight, you were awarded the Medal of Valor. You were the first ever agent. Um, can you can you talk about that a little bit? Like, obviously, that's a huge honor. I just want to hear it in oh, your own, it, in your it, own it, words. It was, it was huge. Yeah, you know, it was like, you know, I, it's kind of weird because the the FBI has always been, uh, I don't know, uh, not not stingy, but kind of like they they know men and women you know serve you know and most most people you know they're just regular old folks you know they, they're they not looking for limelight they're not looking for anything uh you know they're not looking for any glamour or anything else you know so you know uh and the bureau has always lacked in in rec you know a recognition program you know they, they used to give you a letter of uh you know appreciation you know it's like we appreciate we appreciate your uh, your service, <laughs> you know. We appreciate you getting shot to pieces. Have a nice day, you know. <laughs> not quite that bad, but you know what I'm saying. Right. And then uh, some some folks are saying, "Hey, you know what? Uh, uh, some other agencies around the, the country have uh, uh, medals, you know, for um, for their officers, you know. But see, officers wear uniforms, you know. So like the military, you know, they they can wear their medals on their uniform, you know. So that's why most civilian you know, non-uniform agencies, you know, it, it's kind of hard to, you know, kind of hard to wear a medal, you know, I mean, you know, uh, unless you're like a Russian czar, you know, you wear, you, you wear your medals on your jacket, you know, so, but uh, someone came up with the idea of, uh, in like in 1987, saying, hey, you know what, we ought to have a medals program, you know, and then the medal, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm totally oblivious, I, I don't have any idea this is going on, you know, but they said, "Hey, you know, uh, we we need to recognize Ed, you know, because of, of uh, the, the good work he did, you know, blah blah blah." Uh, and uh, then one day I get a call, you know, thinking, "Hey, Ed, you know, you, <laughs> you've been selected to for the uh, what, what's the the word I'm looking for here? Help me out, uh, like the kickoff, kick, kicking off the program, in, inaugural, inaugural, yeah, in, 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 inaugural." Uh, uh, inauguration of, uh, of the medals program. So I, I was the, the first recipient of any medal whatsoever uh, that the FBI gave, and I was the first recipient of the Medal of uh, Medal of Valor. And it was a huge, uh, <laughs> a huge honor, man. Because, like I said, I had no clue. They just, uh, you know, called me, notified me on the phone, saying, "Hey, listen, we'd like you up in D.C. You know, and uh, <laughs> with you and your wife, you know, and uh, come up here and." Uh, I said, well, what the heck, you know, so <laughs> I show up and it was a huge deal. I mean, it, you know, it was like uh, all the past directors, you know, the attorney general, they had the, the, they had a military band, you know, and it was out on the, in the courtyard of the FBI building. It's like, I looked around, you know, I mean, because they had me inside, you know, in, in a little, uh, I guess you call it a green room or something, you know, waiting, you know, and then uh, I went outside and there must have been like a thousand people there. It's like, what? Wow. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you had no idea. Like, wow. You know, so uh and and it was a big deal, you know, they you know, the director at the time, uh, uh William Sessions, you know, put you know, 
take, comes out, reads the uh, the citation, and then puts a medal around my neck. You know, it's like wow. You know, I felt I really felt like a like one of the uh, military czars in Russia. You know, had the medal on my neck. You know? <laughs> I'm wearing a suit. You know, so <laughs> you know, so it was kind of cool. It really was. You know, plus it was a great honor, though. I mean, it's like. You know, and then you know they they say, well, you know, the the standard for for all medals of honor, medals of valor, will be uh, Ed Morales's, uh, you know, event. You know, so <laughs> that that's pretty tough. You know, so uh, uh, you know, I think they probably lowered the standards a little bit because it, it was just like almost pretty pretty near impossible. You know, so. Well, incredibly well deserved. Obviously, it goes without saying. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. You know, but uh, that's that's pretty much you know how the program started. You know, and again, it was uh, it was a great great honor. You know, it's incredible, Ed. Um, wow, man! I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Yeah, today. absolutely. No, thanks, guys. I mean, I, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to to talk, you know, uh, to you guys, and uh, hopefully uh, your audience, you know, will uh, will get something out of it, you know. So they most certainly will. No, I know, I know they will. <laughs> yeah. I know they will. Yeah. And, and 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 by the way, you know, uh, Jack, you know, I really appreciate the. Uh, your service, you know, to the country, you know, it's like, uh, you know, thank you for your service, you know, thank I you, mean, Ed. a lot of people, you know, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, our society today, you know, they, they don't thank uh, the military folks enough, you know, in my opinion. I mean, I've served, I've been overseas, you know, and I've seen, seen some things, you know, and it's like, we don't thank you enough, man. Well, and likewise, you know? Ed, I mean, you served <laughs> long and hard as a law enforcement officer, including, you know, a, a few years over in Iraq. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and as you said, you had the opportunity to go and ride a desk if you wanted it you didn't have to be yeah. out there yeah well it's just not my i mean you know it's just not my style and it's like hey you know i i don't want to sound dramatic but i'm a man of action you know i can't sit on my butt you know <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting on my butt now when, now that i'm retired you know but <laughs> back then no way well no, earned so. though yes. well earned now. yeah <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys yeah thank you I really appreciate your time, you know, and uh, again, thanks, thanks for both of you, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity. No, thank you, Ed. Seriously, great job. Yeah. This was uh, okay, very guys. insightful, great to listen to. Okay, guys, thank yeah. you. Thank Take you so care, much. Ed. Take care. Bye-bye. I mean, whew, what a story. Tough act to follow, huh? Yeah. For sure. <laughs> uh, I don't even know if there is an act to follow. There, <laughs> um, that was Ed Morales, obviously. You just listened to the whole thing. Uh Three quick points I wanted to talk about the the interview. First off, it was very early. He would call it hunting, um, like man hunting. He would call it hunting. I thought that was just such a like a that was a badass thing to do. He's like, yeah, we were hunting these these cult like perpetrators. That is right off the bat. I was like, this guy means business. He talk about hunting humans, like not even like deadliest game stuff, just. Oh, yeah, like we weren't we weren't like uh, following. We were hunting them. It was like yeah, okay, you're trying to hunt down some armed, dangerous <laughs> suspects. <laughs> like that was good. Secondly, I knew he had flair. His um his what was he'd be like he would tell the story and he would go what and I was like all right this guy he's got a flair for storytelling. I knew that was going to be enjoyable. Um, and thirdly, you could hear like the um obviously the story was incredible in its own right. Traumatic amnesia. I I. I could tell that that caught your eye a little bit just in the sense of obviously most civilians hopefully have never had to deal with that, but being in the military or law enforcement, if God forbid you don't have to deal with it, but if you are, it's almost reactionary 
I don't want to, I mean, I can't put myself in those shoes, but I, I could just, I saw that, that you reacted to it and him describing, like, he's like, I think this is what happened. People told me this is what happened, but at the same time, I'm going to be honest. I don't really know. Yeah. I, I, I've, to my knowledge, uh, and to my recollection, which is a stupid thing to say, since we're talking about amnesia, I don't think I, I ever had <laughs> right. that experience. Like you wouldn't know, but I I've read about it and yeah, the human body and mind at a certain point will shut down. Right. Which and is crazy. If you've ever, um, I, I mean, if you cover things like war crimes and you study, uh, this kind of pretty dark stuff, but, um, like for instance, women who are raped may experience traumatic amnesia. Like the, it's it, it's it is a known psychological yeah, like it's, it's a real phenomena. Thing. Yeah, it's a real thing. And uh, and, and yes, like soldiers in combat have experienced it. Uh, I I remember one story that I had a, a guy I worked with tell me he was in the invasion of Iraq with special forces, and he told me the story about how they were driving in a convoy, and um, they accidentally drove right by like an entire battalion of Iraqi troops. They didn't know we're there. Okay. So immediately they get into a huge firefight. Right. And he said that after they drove through this, this area and this huge firefight and, and he, he remember, he recalls he was shooting his, uh, his rifle out the window. Mm-hmm. But after they cleared through the area, he said, I, I looked down and I saw like two or three expended magazines in between my feet. And he's like, I don't remember reloading. Wow. Yeah. You, you just going through your, yeah, because that's a, how you were trained. You almost like blackout and it's just muscle memory. Yeah. You, you, you're in this moment. You, your, your heartbeat goes through the roof. Your adrenaline goes through the roof. Um, but he, he had been well-trained and he did everything he was supposed to do, but he didn't specifically recall he remember. taking the magazine out of the magazine pouch, dropping the magazine from his rifle, putting the magazine into the rifle, dropping the bolt, and re- he didn't remember that. That's crazy. For, t- for several magazine changes he had yeah. in a firefight. <laughs> it wasn't just so one. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the, the amnesia. Yeah. That's it, it's just something that you don't experience in real life but i mean i mean well obviously that's real life but like normal everyday life that that's just something what hearing hearing ed talk about it and then hearing your story just now that like it really puts as you said the human body is just it's a fascinating machine as ed called it um yeah it really gives you appreciation for like the training you said he you know you know what you're doing but at the same time your body it's almost the uh the lights are on, but nobody's home, and you're just kind of reacting. Right, right. It can become that. I mean, you hope it doesn't turn into. Oh, that, absolutely. Um, but yeah, in combat, when you're that, yeah. And I, I mean, it obviously went through. Like, it just takes over. Like, you know, okay, these guys are down. Like, I got to go help my guys. How about great job by you by asking how he how he shucked the shotgun? I was. I'm sitting there. I'm thinking like. He describes his arm as just dangling. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, all right, well, what are you doing, buddy? <laughs> it's just, I pictured him like Terminator, just ch- ch- one hand in it. Oh, like uh, <laughs> like Linda Hamilton? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, oh, I was I, like, all right, at least oh, he was I mean, sitting that, down. That, I mean, this, that whole story was just incredible because he was a grievous, a grievously injured um, and stayed in the fight. And he was still, yeah, shocking rounds into the shotgun, firing, doing it again, again, again. And then actually like, uh, like, passing out and he, he gets up and shuffles over to the car firing his service revolver it's like holy shit like this guy is hardcore <laughs> from beginning to end that was yeah. just i mean we we had known what the, this conversation was leading to but just hearing and for it to only take 
from probably the, the time they recognized the vehicle to the final four, four minutes. Five five minute like tops. Yeah. That's crazy. You can go through a drive through fast, like in the in the amount of yeah. time it took to. And do how that. You, he was saying he he got out of his vehicle and was running towards where the firefight was. So fifty yards, I think he said, and that mm-hmm. that's a, that's a long movement to make in a firefight. Half half a football field. Yeah. Um, and and he says the next thing I remember, I'm staring up at the sky. Yeah, which and he's like, I don't know how I got there. It's like yeah, yeah no kidding, because yeah. your forearms blasted. But um, but you know, he's giving it to you straight. You know, which I appreciate, and, and you and you not, acknowledge that. Like, yeah, you, you need to interject humor, otherwise you. Oh well, that that as well, yeah. Um, but he, I mean, that was an incredible story, and and a true story. Like Hollywood couldn't script something like that. That was just five minutes long from beginning to end, and it was jam packed. And he and. 30, what was it, 86 or 32, 33 years later, 34, I don't even know, 34 years later, and he still remembers it as if it was yesterday. Well, yeah, you're not going to forget Oh, yeah, for sure, but (laughs) (laughs) definitely not, but just every detail of it was. Yeah, and well, you know, what it comes down to, and one of the things that I hope people get out of listening to these, some of these uh, podcast interviews and stuff is that, like, America is just lucky to have these people. Oh, without a doubt. You know, that, that. You know these people are out there, uh, and that they're on our side. Um, you know, Ed was actually he was another listener recommendation. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I, I, was, I was vaguely familiar with the you know the the Miami FBI shootout um, because it's pretty famous or infamous, if you will. Um, but I never would have thought that we'd be able to get Ed on the show. Um, but we he was referred to us. And, you know, introductions were made. Yeah, so great job by you guys. Yeah, yeah. So thank you very much for that. Um, Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as we did. I I don't see how you could not. That was... It is incredible. Um, So, yeah, listeners are knocking it out of the park with these recommendations lately. Um, I'm glad I I asked them. (laughs) Yo, for sure. (laughs) Like, I think the last... Definitely Cody was a recommendation. I'm trying to think. The next one will be, so there's a tease. Um... No, just the listeners. Phenomenal. You get you sent me the list. You were like, hey, these guys suggested, I don't know, whatever it was, 12 people. And, you know, we've been reaching out and we've got on a handful of them so far. And every one of them has been a home run. I like, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say otherwise anyway, but no, they, they truly, they, they truly, that would just be bad business on my end. But they truly have been incredible interviews. I mean, and we, we talk about this every time after every interview is that it's such an individual story with the overall umbrella. Like, you know, these people are heroes. And, I we had talked about it at the end of last episode, but I knew Ed was going to do this when we asked him about the medal of valor, and he was like, "You know, I was just doing my job," and I knew he was going to do it. Like, <laughs> I'm just doing my job, and it's like he he did a little bit more than just doing his job, right? right. Like, a hey, Ed, bit more. hey, Ed, buddy, like <laughs> any other normal humans, you know, got a, a chicken wing for an arm, and and they're you know, I'm not I'm not loading shotguns, I'm just. I'm no, hiding under a car and calling he, it a... Yeah, he deserved it. He deserved it. Without he, a doubt. He, went, he went above and beyond that day. So, honestly, Ed, thank you very much for coming on. That was uh, that was incredible. Hopefully, the listeners, you guys should enjoy it as much as, as Jack and I did. Um, also, be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men, by men, of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. All tier crates are available at crateclub.us. And right now, we're running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all soft rep radio listeners. That's you guys. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we're not entirely sure how long this promotion will last. So get on it right now. That's crateclub.us, coupon code SOFREP, S O 
F-R-E-P, for 20% off your subscription for all crates. Sign up today. Also, as a reminder to you, the listener, now is the time to sign up for Spec Ops Channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at thenewsrep.com, you've got to get on board. Expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here, like Jack Murphy, his recent article on Eddie Gallagher. Be sure to check that out. We talked about it in the open. Uh, Stavros, Alex hops on every now and then. Uh, Greg Walker, he was on a couple weeks ago. There's many more who pop in. You get unlimited access to NewsRep on any device, unlimited access to the app, and you get to join the War Room community. There's invitations to our exclusive events, and it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial offer up right now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Sign up at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. By the way, if you're not aware, we have our own SoftRep radio app that you can download for free on iPhone or Android. And our homepage is softrepradio.com, where you can see our full archive of shows. As always, keep up with us at SoftRep Radio as well. With that, I don't think uh, much needs to be said. That Ed was very lengthy. I I was I didn't know, couldn't gauge through email. You can I usually have a good feel of like, all right, this guy's gonna be like Cody. I knew was gonna be entertaining. Ed was very yes. I'd love to come on. Thank you for the opportunity. So I was like, all right, he might be buttoned up. He was anything but. He he let loose right from the get go, which we greatly well, appreciate. It's, uh, yeah, it's his story, so he knows it quite well. You know, you would hope so. Yeah, um, and that's why it's great to you know hear it directly from the source. Oh, without question. But yeah, there's not much uh, much I can say to follow on to that. Um, no. <laughs> So oh, wild shootout in Miami. That is everything. Like that hits all the boxes. You, you know. Yeah. Everything you want it to be. The good guys win in the end. Uh, well, there are two agents lost. Well, that it's not everything, but tragic. But all all things considered. Yeah. Outside of there, yeah. The two. What was it? Uh, ben and Jerry. Which it, it's hard not like he said that. And obviously, the, being the large man I am, you think ice cream. But it's like, uh, so sorry for their loss. Obviously, 32, 34 years later. Um, but outside of that, Ed, thanks for coming on. That was awesome. Uh, be sure to check us out. Subscribe, rate, review, do the whole nine. Uh, leave us messages on Instagram, Twitter, email the show. If you got any questions, we're, we're happy to, to throw them out there. So hope you guys enjoyed this one, cool. and we will see you again Tuesday. See you next time. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.